Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're time warping back to 2001. <laughs> Something that was more challenging than I thought it'd be when we first um, first suggested it. I thought I remembered things from this year, then it turned out I hadn't. So, Is this as big a time jump as Back to the Future? Uh, I Let's think, that's what, like from the 80s to the 50s? Maybe. No. No. Wait, no, it's no. not quite not quite that far, that far. Wouldn't that be like was that like thirty years or something like that? I, I don't remember. But uh Yeah, again. I guess his parents are like in their fifties, so yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, you know, um, I certainly I certainly look about um you know, fifty years old after my uh, career in print media and um the uh, the pandemic and my diet. So, you know, that's uh you know, it's accumulated. What I don't really understand is that I look like in 2001, I looked like uh, Marty McFly's dweeby dad, <laughs> so very uncool. But now I look like old Biff. <laughs> what, like, What's um, up with that? Which version of old Biff? The deferential old, one like at the future, end. Like, like pitiful old Biff. <laughs> I don't know if I see old Biff in, in you, really. Um, but yeah, I, I looked it up and it's 30 years. It's 1985 okay. back to 55. So uh, yeah, not quite that far. Also, I'm not sure we can do best games of um, 1991. I think we might struggle with that one. So uh, if we don't mind the list being like three games long, because it'll end up being that inevitably. Um, picking fucking Minesweeper. I'm sure Minesweeper is not a 91 game, but that's the, the furthest back my brain could go in the moment. <laughs> I did something yesterday I was going to talk about, but I can't remember what it is. So um, let's move on to uh, to this episode, Matthew. Good. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely good content. So, uh, Matthew, it can't be any worse than my earring observation, which I now incredibly regret. Because, oh no, uh, <laughs> that was such a minor thing. But like, um, yeah, sorry, because I feel like I put the boot in with the listeners. So Matthew mentioned that someone had an outgoing personality because they wore an earring, and uh, yeah, later tried to kind of walk it back. Um, well. Yeah, he's at, uh, the only reason I bring it up is because he's changed. It, well, it used to be a small square stud, but today it's like a big black ring. It's an even more outgoing stud. <laughs> to be honest, if I'm if I'm telling the absolute truth, I probably I probably agree with you. I probably would think the same thing as you, but I wouldn't vocalise it. That's the difference. I would think <laughs> I would think that's probably slightly embarrassing if I say that or dad like, and I will I will simply repeal it and say right. nothing. So that's the difference between you and me, I guess. I, I should have just moved on. I don't know why I'm drawing all this attention to it again. No, no idea really. <laughs> it, so it clearly makes me uneasy. <laughs> <laughs> so people know that we do these different uh, game of the year type episodes. We do like top ten lists, alternating top ten lists. We have done. The years 2006 to 2016, so we've covered like a massive range of time. And I put them all in a big Spotify playlist, actually. It's something like ridiculous, like 34 hours of audio. There's just so Oof. much stuff in there. Um, it can't all be good. It's got to be a lot of shite in there as well, Matthew. Yeah. Just, <laughs> um, but I, I had always wanted to go back a bit further to some of these early noughties years and talk about that period, because I think that's where a lot of like our taste that informed this show really shape shape up and i think it was also partly inspired i've been chain listening to the draft episodes of the big picture matthew and did think oh yeah there are some like you know you do get slightly different types of anecdotes or observations when you go further back and i knew we could like summon summon a list of 10 for this one so that's kind of why i thought we would do this we did 2006 that was the furthest back we've been but this is the the first year we've done where we weren't working in games media, so there's no none of that element to it. Normally when we do these episodes, we tell magazine stories or whatever other ill-fated jobs we ended up in afterwards. Mm. <laughs> but this time, we don't have that. So is it going to work, Matthew? Do you think there's enough meat on the bones for this episode? 
Yes, hopefully. One thing I would say is that outside of reading NGC, N64, I can't remember when N64 became NGC, but outside of reading that Nintendo magazine and maybe Games Master, like I wasn't super engaged with much conversation around games. Like reading through your plan and seeing your recap of the year, like in terms of conferences, so much of what was going on, like was I just had no idea. You know, mm. this is this is the prime era where my very unpopular Xbox take was born. That no one was interested in Xbox <laughs> because I wasn't interested in Xbox. I knew nothing about it. So. You know, I will own up to very, very patchy knowledge outside of a very specific thing I was interested in at the time. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I've done a lot of research for this one because I don't remember what happened at the different E3 conferences from for, for this time because you know E3 was something you you know you exclusively experienced through magazines in like news yeah. sections and previews basically. So you know, there's not actually as much material to draw upon. For example, you can't even watch the Xbox conference from this year. There are snapshots of it that are in the um they're in the Xbox documentary they did in twenty twenty one, um, which is a really good documentary. And that, that mm. does give you quite an honest insight as to what was going on. But for the Sony and Nintendo ones, someone had like done a grainy VHS recording of the different um conferences, which is super handy for research. But like you, I didn't know any of this stuff really. And mm. this year the the sort of like key thing for me, Matthew, and why I sort of wanted to choose this this year is that this does represent the era that i properly click back into games after like a, a short hiatus like um i feel like there is there is a pop culture phenomenon that happened in 99 2000 called pokemon that occurs and i feel like for that for like the that year or so year and a half all i was really doing was playing pokemon into the pokemon trading card game and then uh, also watching the um, anime, and then at the same time, uh, watching The Simpsons as well. That was pretty much all I did. And then I went, I went to school and did school things. That was pretty much what I was up to. But at the end of this year, this is where I, I would say, like my modern. This is my journey to becoming a games journalist starts this year. I would, I would say, where this is where I become like in depth obsessed with with games. And there is a handover between. My gaming taste as a boy and my gaming taste as a teenager that occurs here. As a man. <laughs> I didn't want to say man because I was most certainly not a man at the time. Trust me. Um, I was a very embarrassing boy doing a paper round. So, yeah. So, so that's why it's significant to me. Like, I, I do remember firsthand some of the things that went on this year. I actually don't remember the NGC thing either. I do remember that buying the first issue of NGC that had the orange VHS on it. But that, I feel like that might have been O2 because the GameCube launch came a little bit later here, didn't it? So, um yeah, yeah, I feel like they probably wouldn't have rebadged the magazine, then changed it. To, we could easily look this yeah, up and find say out. We're reviewing the import stuff, though. So that's a very good point, actually. But and then I think that was in the issue that they did. I'm just going to look it up actually when that magazine yeah, changed. Okay. That would be a, there is a solution to this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. October 2001. So it was this year that I bought that um, that issue. Purple right. purple cover. Uh, Mario Sunshine on the cover, and weirdly the second biggest hit is Crazy Taxi. That's uh, that's an mm. interesting choice. And then like there's a bit of Zelda in there as well. So um, yeah, some of the key the key Nintendo stuff had already occurred, and I would say the GameCube was starting to solidify at the end of the year. So I can see why they did that that flip there. Um, mm. But yeah, do you do you remember your sort of like relationship with games at this time? It, it, it's this this year particularly is quite an interesting one. Definitely going into 2002 because. You know, while 2002, GameCube comes out, and like I'm absolutely obsessed with that. I would say that in my social life, 2001 marks going from secondary school to college. And when I went to college, uh, like 
my little sort of French, my little traditional friendship group broke up a little bit just because one of the one of the guys went to a different college to us and people kind of reinvented themselves at college and a lot of people kind of reinvented themselves as not being into dweeby shit that I was into yeah so I feel like it suddenly became a bit of a solitary hobby for me and I never found like a new video game crowd probably properly until like I started working on Endgamer in 2006. You know, I was never like uh, actually that I tell a lie. I had university friends who played a lot of multiplayer and were into games, but college for me is kind of like games became quite private. Mm. Um just because no one wanted to talk to me about fucking Mario Sunshine or the GameCube <laughs> because it looked like a, you know, a silly children's box and this this was like Everyone leaves secondary school and they're like, right, I'm going to college and like no one knows how fucking lame I was at secondary school. So now I can be like cool and attractive to girls. And yeah, I just kept being interested in like point and click games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean this I mean obviously I'm I'm a tiny bit younger than you. So this year I was in year eight and nine basically, like right. uh, a start of the year eight and then end of the year nine. So uh, you know the my friends of mine were into games but i do remember that yeah. college moment in like 2004 where people st- we we every lunchtime i used to go and play football on the field um like uh it was like good for my mental health and when i stopped doing it i became a right angry bastard basically like i am now like i just <laughs> really? i completely bypassed that by playing football every lunchtime it completely sorted me out mental health wise and then at college Your people were like villain kryptonite is playing football that <laughs> turns you not into supervillain. <laughs> basically but all the same kids I knew who, who liked football more than me or were better at football than me they were like yeah we're just gonna sit in the common room now and we're just gonna like hang out and we're just gonna do that we're not gonna yeah. ever play football at lunch times they didn't have interest as far as I know they just wanted to go work in Morrison's at the weekend and save up for a trip to fucking Iron Apple or some bullshit and like you know you might argue that I was the <laughs> the grumpy Gus in that in that instance who was not fun and was dragging everyone else down <laughs> and you may be accurate there but certainly it felt different in you know this year for me i definitely felt like i was on the same page as people when it came to interest and you're right there right. is a switch that flicks and then people suddenly aren't on your wavelength anymore it's a weird one right yeah i mean you know, when i was at secondary school you know we were going to my friend craig's house at lunchtime because we were prefects and if you're prefects i think actually no year 11s could could leave the school grounds he lived around the corner we'd go there and we'd play like three games of perfect dark at lunchtime every lunchtime wow. you know that was like you know that was our school experience was so defined by games and being obsessed by games so to go from that to suddenly like yeah college where you know the the people you suddenly spent all this time with were spending time with like other people and we're really getting into like music or whatever you know other things other things that were perceived a bit more kind of grown up or legitimate yeah games games felt slightly cursed for sure but that you know that that also means this year you know I you know up until the end of sort of secondary school the first half of this year you know was a uh, was still the period where you know I I was only really playing like one or two games a year endlessly in multiplayer you know the first half of this year I played perfect dark like that is pretty much all I played with my friends mm. um and that you know I leave that style of gaming behind 
definitely from college forwards you know i suddenly had a saturday job and was buying games for myself you know i was beginning to consume more stuff and have more access to things that definitely picks up more with when the gamecube comes out but um that's definitely a sort of sh- a sort of shift within my playing and buying habits yeah this uh you know this is the year i get a playstation 2 so right that's the that's why it's like this basically the beginning of this you know new era of games for me it was the first time my parents ever let me have a games console they never bought well that's not true actually i had a mega drive so but the mega drive i got really late i never had a console that was you know concurrent with the times new games being released for it and also like as as much as i there were some games i really liked on the mega drive i i sort of like i I really just found there were like three or four i just played over and over again then about eight i just ignored because they were just rubbish and that was my relationship with that and then you you kind of like reach this age where like you say maybe you're not getting that many games but you have a bit more power over the games that you are getting yeah so that changes things a little bit and yeah that that starts here there's a this is a major year for me because of the ps2 there was like a point where someone told me what grand theft auto 3 was and then i just had to fucking get a ps2 that was this year like I just right. <laughs> i used to cycle to school this little mate called donald and he would just he told he had a brother called douglas which is the name of two trains and thomas the tank engine i always found that confusing <laughs> um and basically they uh yeah that he told me about like 3d grand theft auto and i just i would ask about it basically on the cycle to school every single day and he would tell me about something new that his brother did in this game and i was like i have to fucking get a ps2 and i think i even like went to my parents and was like okay you never let me get a ps1 or an n64 because you said that all the best games were on pc so you don't need to buy that as well but now there are things that i need to play on this and they and i think they actually understood and that's how i ended up with one basically so yeah that's what, kind of my relationship with games this year. image you've painted there of, <laughs> of you two exchanging gta3 stories on the back of bikes i like that a lot that's that's very sweet yeah i was i was very bad at riding a bike i'm very uncoordinated <laughs> And the idea, I, I think even talking to someone would have, like, distracted me from the act of staying on the bike. <laughs> so that story just, that seems wild to me. But. Yeah, it, actually, like, it sounds like if you were to do a Stranger Things style story set in 2001, you would add that kind of detail to make it seem plausible. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> right. two kids talking about GTA 3 on the cycle to school. Um, to, some detail to, like, de-romanticize it a bit. For ages, I had this problem with my bike as a teenager where the brakes would just squeak over and over again. So every, like, f- five seconds, it'd be like... <laughs> and it was horrible and you would see like you know as you're passing other kids everyone just looking at me like what the fuck is that bike doing kind of thing so that like maybe drags it down a little bit i think even donna was slightly embarrassed that my broken bike was i just was i left it that way for about a year my dad could never fix it he would like adjust the brakes and go oh that's it it's sorted now and then i get on it and do the same thing i was like it's not sorted dad and that was basically like that's that was the the, the reality behind the bike situation your friend bellowing gta3 trivia <laughs> The sound of squeaks. <laughs> yeah, that and was. And then like... you get to the second island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, like a, a, a key thing that happened to me in the middle of this year was we moved house across town. Basically, I lived grew up in Gosport in Hampshire, which is Tory heartland. I think it had the highest fucking Brexit vote in some area, like or very close to like the highest like mm. Brexit split. So really cursed that we moved across town from like a semi-detached house this quite nice detached house because my mum used to work in a factory then she trained up to be a teacher my dad was always a firefighter and they just basically like climbed the ladder a tiny bit and went from i would say like 
you know, sort of like uh, upper working class to lower middle class, I would say. So that's the sort of thing that happens this year. And then moving is like, I don't know, a bit of a, it sort of changes my friendship group because the people you you have access to are a bit different. That's how me and that Donald guy become friends. There's another kid called Ryan around the corner who we used to hang out with. There was this little bench that these, um, some ruffian teenagers have scrawled like Mike, Dave and Bob into the into the bench or something and we will see us always sit in the same positions i think i was mike i was just sat on the the right and then they those two would take their other positions we would sit <laughs> looking at this chain link fence with a no ball game sign with a football kicking the football against the fence and the sign over and over again for basically three years and that starts this year so that sounds really tedious but these are the sort of things that seem significant to you in retrospect you know what i mean when mm. you try and remember times like that do you remember anything like that like yeah. details of your life you know yeah we moved to us. Uh, I grew up in a small town outside Win- Winchester called Allsford. Um, just quite a nice, very sort of middle class sound place. And we we moved to a house. My stepdad built built a house for the family. Wow. Uh, in this in this village called Bishop Sutton, just outside. So we went there, and I had there was one pub in the village called called the Ship. And so I had a I had a Saturday job there washing up. Um, I think I, that started before two thousand one. But I used to, I used to go and wash up in this pub, and I I absolutely hated it because <laughs> I'm very queasy around like leftover food and kind of like uh, yeah I don't like sauces and I don't like <laughs> you, know, I, you know I've got lots of food hangups. I don't like glistening things. I don't, you know, the idea of having just a succession of plates with like ketchup smears mm. and like leftover gravy and it's just all this nightmare stuff or baked beans i really hate baked beans to the degree like i don't even want to touch the things so having to like wash up that kind of stuff um with this very like angry scottish guy called Stuart who ran the pub and was just like everything you think chefs are in terms of like raging and swearing even though it was this like quite small pub kitchen um i don't know if he could come from like you know a bigger a bigger kitchen or a more kind of professional background and uh, my main two things from washing up in the pub they they always they used to call me the marigold man because i wore a pair of yellow marigold rubber gloves um <laughs> so that that always stuck right. and there, there was a guy there was another guy an older guy who was like a kitchen assistant called lauren hmm. and um <laughs> he he had two claims to fame. One was he told me a story that he blew up the science block at the school that I currently go to, <laughs> which I know isn't true because that just isn't a thing that ever happened. He said he blew it up using the gas taps, um, which was horseshit. And his other claim to fame was that he had every single volume of Now That's What I Call Music. <laughs> wow, and what a combo. <laughs> he would talk about this like... It was like his big kind of icebreaker or kind of like introduction to thing. It'd be like, uh, oh, you know, you won't, you'll, you'll never guess what I've got. And mm. you'd be like, I have no idea. And he'd be like, well, I'll, you know, I'll give you a clue. It's like music related. And you'd be like, I don't know, like a fucking Beatles autograph or something f- important from history. And it would inevitably be, no, I have now i have every volume of now that's what i call music <laughs> which at the point at this point in time i think there are probably only like 30 so as a boast that's like i've got 30 cassettes <laughs> or you know, it's really not an achievement no, um, not compared to blowing up a science block i'll be honest yeah which didn't but compared to something that didn't happen <laughs> yeah um i hope that you know 
he's established himself as a mad fantasist and mm. like maybe he didn't have now that's why call music <laughs> maybe he he was peddling two lies and was hoping the bigger lie would kind of uh you know warm you up to the lesser one but um yeah that was that was a lot of my evenings listening to a man talk about now that's what i call music if any song came on the radio that was on one of those tapes right. that would trigger like a oh, you know what, this is on. And he'd be like, I don't know, now that's what I call music volume five. And it would be like, no, eight. (laughs) (laughs) So I had that conversation a lot. My life was quite hell, hellish. (laughs) (laughs) Did it pay at least enough for you to like buy in 64 games or whatever you're doing with your money? Yeah, yeah, this this year I switched from that to home base. I can't remember exactly (laughs) when that happened or when certain games came out, but home base was like a big step up. But uh, yeah, like they used to pay me in little brown envelopes. Like, you know, I used to get the money in, you know, cash and coins in a little brown envelope. Brown because it was stained with brown sauce from the plates, Matthew. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the final test. Yeah. Uh, The final fuck you. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like... When you when you start buying games, like that's quite a big, you know, it seems really dumb to say like that's quite a big moment in a gamer's life. But mm. suddenly going, I have saved up forty quid and can buy a PC game, and I really want to make sure that that's a good game. Or you know, you just become so much more aware of stuff where previously I wouldn't even think about. You know, like if if you only get a game Christmas and birthday or whatever, like it's almost not worth the bother of kind of thinking about what you might have <laughs> because you're like, well, I'm going to have this and that, you know, like obviously perfect dark is the thing I want, you know, that's, mm. that's the, that's the obvious winner. But now you're like, you're in the realms where you can like afford to make mistakes. You're right. maybe finally in the realm where you can afford to buy a seven out of 10 game instead of a nine out of 10 game, <laughs> take a punt on it and see what happens. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, that sort of like kind of happened for me this year. Cause I got a paper round for the first time. So I was right. suddenly like accumulating, I was paid like five pound 30 a week for like five shifts. It wasn't actually that, that hard to do. Like I, at one point, I think it went down to like eight papers a day, and I could do it in twenty minutes, and it was just felt like a free five pounds basically by just that's by still a pound it. a shift. Yeah, it's like uh, it's pretty it seems pretty poor in retrospect, I guess. But um, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. it's twenty minutes though. Pound for twenty minutes, that's not bad. Yeah, I, I like basically you had to work your way up the like one stop pecking order because when I first started doing it, the sh- the shift I got was like thirty eight papers, and it took me so long to do it on a Saturday. Like I remember having a panic attack about how the hell am I going to do this every single night down for the rest of my life. Basically, that's what it felt like at the time. <laughs> um, but then like quickly, boys would like leave. You know, they go work in actual one stop and put the uniform on and everything so easier shifts would would open up and the new kid would be doomed with your old one basically and that was kind of like how it worked so um mm. yeah i think i just like you know wormed my way up also the thing you'd other you would also do is you would send christmas cards when you're a paper boy because someone gave me a tip off like an older paper boy said an old hand said if you send them christmas cards they'll give you like a tip and uh, i made some i think i made a hundred quid from doing that so um wow yeah it was that was massive like having that was huge so i basically sat on that money until i got my ps2 and that's how i ended up buying like the memory card and the games and stuff so uh yeah my big side hustle at was at home base uh if you um if you did if you were on trolley duty you could keep (laughs) any excess pounds you've collected oh nice well i don't know if you were technically allowed to keep them but everyone did keep them right um because sometimes i don't know what state of mind you've got to be where you've put a pound in a trolley 
you get to your car and you're like, I cannot be fucked to walk across the, <laughs> the, the car park and get my pound back. I'm just going to leave it here. But right. for old Castle with his special trolley skeleton key, which <laughs> I had, you could go around and boop. Um, that key was incredibly powerful because I, I never did this for, for obvious reasons. But like when you're in a store and you just see all these trolleys everywhere, you're like, I could just walk around popping pounds out of all these trolleys that are in use. Um, like that would be like instant fired if you did. But um, it's a it's a powerful drug, the trolley key. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I try to think other stray memories. I had a rivalry with another paper boy. That was like something else that happened. <laughs> Who I ended up being pals with. But I remember at one point him chasing me. He was like this kid called Mark. And I can't remember what he was upset about. But he just like rode after me and was sort of screaming at me. And I can't remember why. And this is a kind of like petty small town nonsense i would sort of find myself in the weird thing about this period as well is i have a best friend who like was a bit embarrassed about being my best friend that was strange i mm. i was in school i was in um because we used to be separated by like language classes that's how they structured it you were basically like you were, you were we were like spanish group two or something and we had like eight boys in our class and 22 girls it's quite um a quite different sort of gender split mm. and so i end up being pals with this kid from this quite uh, this quite popular kid but we had like loads in common like we both watched obviously simpsons every night but we watched we were both obsessed with smtv as well which um for our <laughs> non-uk listeners is like basically like a a kids variety show i suppose i suppose like it's probably best compared to something like saturday night live or something but made for kids it was basically well, like yeah, a, yeah, and on saturday mornings instead of evenings yeah exactly and it's basically just a bunch of skits and then they'd show like kids programs like pokemon in between and sabrina the teenage witch stuff like that so it was like um but they were there was like it was slightly anarchic the hosts were quite you know quite fun and in deck they were quite like you know basically it was Cat just Daily. yeah exactly they were just yeah cat Daily erasure there sorry about that um <laughs> but yeah but yeah like basically the humor was was sort of set at adult level but all the teenagers watching really clicked with it so i think it's like quite fondly remembered even all these years later so uh we that were... game they used to play where they had to rhyme the animal name wonky that donkey just, that's gold that was pretty good. Chums was pretty good. Their friends parody. Yeah. Uh, the best one though was Deck says, where um, Deck would give out life advice, but it would flash back to his tragic childhood, where he had like a his voice hadn't broke, and it, that was that was the one we used to really dig. So uh, yeah, we used to talk about that stuff constantly. But when he was around <laughs> his more popular pals, he was definitely like distancing himself from me, and it made things like a little bit odd when we would like hang out again and have loads in common and stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, that's weird. I'm embarrassing for someone. That's oh uh, yeah. yeah. That that was that's what it felt like going to college because you go to college in Winchester now. Obviously, Winchester by most people's standards is like like the most lightweight place in the world, like very <laughs> very soft boys from Winchester. But like in our minds, you know, we we were coming from this little village secondary school, going to a place, and everyone, you know, everyone else in the same year as us, so all the lower six people, they seemed so much more grown up mm. and like. Well, you know, world not world wise. What's the phrase? Um, uh, worldly is that the right term? Worldly, maybe is that it? Yeah, like um, you know, they were just—they'd all seem to have like really fucking lived. We all felt incredibly sheltered, and some people just took to that and blended it really well, and were able to sort of fake it till they make it. But mm. I was always quite sort of stubborn and sort of determined uh, never ever to change, <laughs> which is a terrible, terrible trait of mine. Um, so you end up just sort of glomming on to like a few other kind of similar minded freaks. Well, you can um, see why like games media ends up becoming very significant to you and me, right? Because you finally get to meet <laughs> the like minded people you never met when you're a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to throw everyone under the bus. I had loads of really <laughs> nice friends, but like 
you know, there, there were, I think part of it as well was that my my home base shift was Friday night, which was obviously the night most people started going out in Winchester after college and like getting into sort of you know slightly more adult nightlife, I guess. Where I went to home base, gleefully collected pounds from trolleys, and then walked home to the bus station. I'd buy a huge bar of chocolate in Blockbuster Video next to the train, uh, next to the bus station, right? And then go home and just eat loads of fucking chocolate, um, <laughs> play Paper Mario, like, and have no one to discuss it with. Basically, that was, but that's like literally my, that's like my my. I thought I was living the dream, <laughs> like you know. <laughs> the other part of this, which for people who don't know, home may, you know, foreign listeners or people who, you know, younger people who don't remember the old home base uniforms were green trousers and green tops. You were just a big green thing. And walking down and just having all the people out on Friday night bellowing shit at you because you were dressed all in green. Like, I was such a target for them because I'm quite tall and like gangly and weird looking. Like I say, very Marty McFly's dad. Imagine a big green. Uh, Marty McFly's dad <laughs> like if you were looking for someone to pick on on a Friday night you'd definitely pick on me um, <laughs> but as long as I could get to Blockbuster get into the safety of Blockbuster get my chocolate maybe peruse the ex-rental video games uh, and then get on the bus you know that was that was good times I also had a um, my pride and joy was I had a mini fridge right which oh, that's I a very most... 2001 thing to own very <laughs> much I thought was the most grown up thing in the world because you were like <laughs> I finally have, like, my own food. It's liberated from the family <laughs> fridge. I have stuff which belongs just to me. And I used to fill it with two-finger Kit Kats. I used to get multi-packs of two-finger Kit Kats and cartons of apple juice. <laughs> and it was just drinking tiny portions of apple juice and tiny portions of Kit Kats, oh. thinking, like, I'd fucking made it. <laughs> I remember this as the year that my mum threw out my inflatable like armchair. That was a thing that people had for a while oh, in the yeah, 90s. Yeah. My mum was like, it's too disgusting. It just has to not be in the house anymore. And then bought me like an actual armchair from some charity shop. So, oh, wow. Uh, I sat in that. For, yeah, that was like must have things. Mini fridge, inflatable <laughs> armchair, lava lamp. Lava lamp, of course. Yeah. Uh, that's really funny. Well, what a scene, what a picture that paints. So having, yeah. having no one to talk to about a fucking paper Mario, Matthew, that must have been tough. Um, yeah. Yeah. Though- one of my one of my college friends though started um dating this older guy and uh it was great because through her i could get her old boyfriend to start buying me 18 rated games nice this was a year later but i definitely remember cashing in on that to get soldier of fortune 2 and thinking <laughs> like this is abs- this is absolutely amazing this has happened um and it was <laughs> one of my other friends uh, had had a sort of a kind of crush crush on this this other friend and so like that this older boyfriend being on the scene was always a point of contention i was very like you know out of solidarity very anti older boyfriend um until he started buying me like violent video games <laughs> or going i'd give him like my 30 quid and he'd go into game and buy them for me and then it was like this guy's all right so gets you a, of, like, gets you a beer gets you a beer and says a little thing for the fridge matthew just uh you know, <laughs> sends you on your way <laughs> Yeah. So um yeah, 
it's funny or it's quite yeah it's quite a, a rich time for like weird weird gaming happenings <laughs> yeah 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 it was a it was a little bit uh do you have any like mag memories from this year because i remember like being on the way i like i used to just stand in the one stop where i did my paper round and i would just read all the games mags that weren't in packaging and i like had a, i had a feeling i was going to get a ps2 after my mum started vaguely asking for clues about games in a really like not very subtle way she was like my students were talking she's a teacher my students were talking about this game called ssx tricky uh what do you know about that and i was like oh, i think it's like a snowboarding game and um then she asked me about like james bond and i was like oh yeah i don't think this one's very good because it's not goldeneye <laughs> and it's like <laughs> things like that they still ended up buying me agent under fire by the way that was um that was yeah. tough but um but yeah i remember like buying my first copy of official playstation 2 magazine obviously i've been reading games mags before this i was still reading pc gamer every now and then at this point but um i remember getting this and like it came came with a demo disc that was in this big old dvd case that was exciting it was like a dvd it was packed with stuff i think it had like eight demos on it, it had like S- smackdown which obviously didn't care about and um silent hill 2 and wipeout fusion dark cloud all these different games so i was just like wow what are these and then um the cover was um dante from devil may cry and it was like the that was the big review of that issue and so that that felt fundamental to me i felt like you know mm. era defining in a lot of ways but what about you matthew do you remember much from this time yeah i mean individual issues of like you know gamecube surfacing and being really excited just you know drinking in all these screenshots of games you know, mario sunshine smash brothers thinking you know these things just look absolutely amazing i think i had that same video you had which had you know footage of like gamecube games like rogue leader and looking at it and you know we've spoken before about seeing footage of that for the first time being like this is the best graphics a game has ever had there has never been lighting like this in a video game as as you saw clips of the death star so like gamecube was it, it seemed so far away i mean it was only like six months later that it came out in the uk but you know that was like a lifetime for you back then because you know time moves slower when you're younger obviously that's that's how it works mm. um so that was that was like you know death and but you know the magazines gave me just enough you know like you know to kind of keep keep that dream alive um definitely remember uh my brother getting official playstation 2 i can't remember if he maybe got his playstation 2 for christmas that year Mm. um but after that getting yeah official playstation 2 magazine with the demo discs and that being you know really really exciting as well no it must have been a year later uh, anyway, whatever. Yeah, you, you know, mags were like they were your access to games. You know, mm. that's that's all we had. Although actually, the I remember at college computer rooms having like pretty amazing internet where you could finally watch like early videos of games starting to p- appear in places. You know, I have very distinct memories of watching not gaming related, but like pro- you know, a year later or two years later, whenever it was. Um, watching like the matrix revolutions trailer and you know on the on the college pc and and just watching that on an endless loop and kind of beginning to kind of consume online pop culture a bit so that was that was exciting but um Mm. yeah like uh, i completely agree i mean actually i the one thing i remember from this year is i remember like going into the temporary internet files and dragging like the gamecube trailer sort of videos for like smash bros melee and star fox and something else off of there to watch like in my own time without using the 56k modem i guess so i remember doing that too and yeah like the that that video on ngc was super significant like i watched that loads i was yeah i was really pumped for 
for those games. So that was definitely part of it. Actually, weirdly, the issue I remember like blowing things open a bit was I had a copy of Games Master that had Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 on the cover. And that, I think, that was like, I think that basically like the intersection of everything that was about to happen in games, like the launch of the GameCube, the launch of the Xbox, like that and then the PS2 being this huge dominant thing just made that moment seem super exciting. I just remember it, this suddenly flipped to being like the number one thing I was invested in games, you know, and it uh, it had been that way on and off, but this was the this was the point where it, basically I would never turn back from games <laughs> and they would come right. to like basically, do, you know, basically be the, the main interest and, you know, driving force of my life to some, some degree. Um, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I was maybe more of a film guy mm. uh, to my peers because that's definitely, I know I was always into films and, you know, my friends who are into games were also into films, but particularly at college, the people I made friends with, it was mostly through a sort of shared love of film. You know, I did film studies and some of my closer friends, you know, came out of that class, um, you know, going to the city, you know, being in Winchester where there was a cinema or having like days where we only had like a half day. So you could then go to Basingstoke and watch a couple of films or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, along with the freedom to buy games, you suddenly had the freedom to just get yourself to places and, you know, just more time on your hands to just sort of enjoy. You know, you were kind of trusted to run your own life a bit more, which you weren't in secondary school. I never was. I wasn't. I didn't feel that way. So, um, you know, being able to, like, go out of my way to, to watch whatever whatever was out that year <laughs> yeah like um that's that, that was another question i was going to ask actually is pop culture wise i think this is a very significant year because you have harry potter and lord of the rings kick off this year um obviously yeah. at, at the time i was mega invested in harry potter lord of the rings wasn't really on my radar i thought i sort of saw them as some, some fusty old books that my aunt had and like wasn't bothered about it but then by the end of the year it flipped and i thought the harry potter film was a bit lame when i first saw it um i think it's actually mm. pretty good in retrospect the first one it's kind of like you know like a classic kiddie film it's actually not too badly done um if we're through the vein through the, the prism of nostalgia but lord of the rings was obviously like a heavy hitter and then just sort of changed everything but yeah um but the, to be honest though um the sort of like a key event that happened to me was watching tim burton's terrible um planet of the apes film this year and thinking i've never seen a more beautiful woman than estella warren like that was a huge <laughs> moment. <laughs> that was a massive moment for me in 2001 matthew but um <laughs> but what about you and pop culture what was um, do you remember anything from this year yeah yeah I, I had actually forgotten that that this is when lord of the rings kicked off but that was that was just absolutely amazing like a top five all-time cinema experience of um yeah just couldn't couldn't believe what they they'd done with it um i remember being really excited for ai because i was you know you know always have been a big spielberg head and the idea of like spielberg and kubrick that seemed really exciting um that's all kind of wrapped up with like there's a lot of weird like post 9-11 stuff like my, my my key memory of ai was going to see it and there being signs everywhere in the cinema going just to warn you in ai uh you, the, the future is depicted and shows the twin t- like the demolished twin towers hmm. and it was like a sort of like i didn't like the first sort of trigger warning i guess i've ever i ever saw was for ai where it was just like watch out you may, you know, you may find this shocking, but the towers aren't here in this world too. So that was that was kind of a weird thing. Like a, a direct cinematic memory tied in with that was like on September 11th itself, we went to see Moulin Rouge, right, right, which is like the most unreal, like 
bizarre thing. I and mean, in hindsight, a very strange thing to see on on September 11th. Hmm. Um, I don't think it had really sort of sunk in, like, what had happened. Or, like, we'd booked tickets, so we were like, yeah, we better go. And, you know, you don't want to waste this ticket. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and then you go and see it, and it's just... I know, you know, I... I love Moulin Rouge. I think it's an absolutely amazing film. I think it's like my favourite Baz Luhrmann film by by quite a distance. Um, and just going and seeing something that's just so like mad and alive and different and weird and you know all this strangeness in there, um, and then coming out into like you know just that event kind of consuming everything for like a month afterwards seemed that seemed super jarring and weird yeah, that but, was that was like a that was an, a quite an odd time it was like the big it, it was like the first majorly like or maybe princess diana dying but like in our lifetimes like where we were grown up enough to kind of understand it or kind of compute um that was odd you know to have this thing we were like oh well this is you know gonna go on to define you know everything everything from now on yeah uh, and we went to see fucking you and McGregor being auto-tuned through the sound of music. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it's. Uh, I remember. I all I remember is how quiet the streets were. Like that's all I remember. And I remember like a kid going past me and telling me what happened because it sort of happened about like, I guess like school wrapping up time you know and like kind of going back like three like three o'clock our time i guess because like morning in america so i remember just like it being on the tv in the corner of the kitchen and my dad watching it i don't remember him saying anything but it just seemed so surreal and shocking um yeah Mm. but i didn't i didn't see moulin rouge that day i'll be honest Um, (laughs) that's good yeah that's sort of like yeah so it's um it's a weird one because pop culture wise you know like it's not really related to it but 24 kicks off this year and that's like one right. of the key this is one of the signature post 9-11 series isn't it but you know that's not why it existed but it, it you know it came to shape that show in a lot of ways so you know that was a key moment um, i think alias started this year as well alias started to, I, I came to alias later though in in like bot set form like same. a couple of years after maybe like when series two had just come out on box set mm, yeah exactly the same for me so that wasn't like a present day thing but yeah that aside like i think um i think harry potter and lord of the rings were the major things from this year i don't remember but, anything like, else I think I'd maybe fallen out of love with Buffy by now. Or... Oh, right, yeah, because it's end of season five, I guess, where she dies, right? So that would have been this so year, I think. This is the thing. This, it all gets into, like, bleak, sad Buffy, um, where I was, like, slightly more frivolous, throwaway early Buffy, mm. um, pre, pre-mum pre death. I think, you, uh, I think you are right about that. At the time, I would have argued <laughs> against that. But, yeah, I've said it before on the, on the podcast, but, like, that, the essence of that show was the high school years. It just right. it was really fucking good when it was at high school. And it was kind of fun when it was at college, but high school was, like, yeah, that was tip-top. They really got good at that. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. Don't remember a lot else apart from that. Like, Futurama, I was watching that. I was, you know, binging that. It was, like, the... You know, that was one of my shows, I guess. Malcolm in the Middle. There was the BBC Two Tea Time um, sort of like block was solid, Matthew. Simpsons, uh, Fresh Prince, Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, and then Top of the Pops 2 or Star Trek, like uh, preferably Top of the Pops 2 for me. But um, yeah, that was kind of like what I did every single night for about about five years. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. think this year had like a particularly classic kind of... You know, there's there's always a film which sort of defines your kind of teen generation or, like, your kind of teen comedy that everyone's into. You know, uh, like, yeah, American Pie or your road trip or your whatever. Mm. Um, I don't know that 2001 added anything, like, particularly crucial to the canon. 
I don't, um, I don't think so. No. Uh, is this like old school year, maybe? I, no, that might be a bit later, actually. No, that's a bit later. It's a, I just looked up comedy, 2001 comedies, and it's, it's like quite a big year for rom-coms. Or it's like rom-coms are like, you know, you've got a lot of like wedding planners and serendipity. Kate, Kate and Leopold with Meg Ryan oh, and Hugh Jackman. fucking hell. <laughs> I remember having a trailer for that on like some some dvd i had and it would play before every single time you'd watch it and i was like oh man what a fucking curse that is to give people um <laughs> american pie 2 that was this year that was kind of just a a sort of like good hang film i don't think anything that significant really happened in it if i recall matthew he just like yeah, tr- he just tried yeah, to get laid that's basically it yeah i thought it was a bit i thought it was a bit naff but, um <laughs> yeah you know i was ab- i was above I was above American Pie. I think, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, Fellowship was the film that defined the year. I think AI is the uh, the underrated masterpiece from this year. I only saw that for the first time this year. And that film fucking is fucking amazing, that film. It's so, so good. So I'm a big fan. And Spider-Man would be the film next year that would be the big film. So I think it was Fellowship this year, pretty much. But, uh, yeah. So Donnie Darko? Oh, yeah, that's a good point, actually. That was that felt like that got bigger later when that um yeah. that song was like Christmas number one. That felt like that was when that, that I really had this took off. I had this C D of um that came free with Total Film, which was like music of the movies or something. It had like ten tracks from different key soundtracks that year. And it had that that song way before it became number one in the charts. Mm. Um I remember listening to that like endlessly on on my computer i was about to share a very nerdy anecdote no go on uh, why not it's, you uh, know. no this is this is real this is like <laughs> this i don't know why this just popped into my head i used to listen to this cd endlessly on a loop and i think it is in <laughs> it is in mad world that 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 particular track rather than one of the other tracks on the cd but there was a particular bit in the song which really sounded like my stepdad shouting my name from downstairs (laughs) (laughs) and every time it played i'd be like oh god who's that who wants me downstairs and i'd go down and be like never be like no no one no one shouted for you like there's just a bit of one of those songs that sounded like someone going matt (laughs) Is it because he's like the way he goes mad world? It like the year towards the end. Because I think it's sort of like the mix. It means that like it becomes, there's a little bit of like, I don't know, voice modulation going on. So maybe that's where it happens. There was something in that CD that sounded like someone bellowing at me. (laughs) (laughs) I've not heard that song for years. I've not seen Donnie Darko for years, but that was, what a fucking great film that was. Should they let Richard Kelly out of movie jail, Matthew? Or do you think he belongs there? um, (laughs) The box. that film he made about the box is the, is the worst film I've ever seen. Um, absolutely fuck him. For that and that awful Southland Tales. Southland oh Tales, my God. yeah. Okay. Um, oh, what that is. Just the worst crime. No forgiveness. That's a, yeah, double bill stinker right there. That's uh, it's tough. Well, Ten and Barms, 2001. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. Another uh, really sort of significant film. Oh, that film. was great. My, I made my mum take me to see that. Um, oh. Look, and that oh. was great. Such a, such a good film. I didn't understand a lot of the jokes in it. I don't think <laughs> a lot of like the weird, um, you know, references that Wes Anderson puts into a lot of these things. But um, I remember thinking when it played "Hey Jude" at the start was really cool. That yeah. was my sophisticated take. <laughs> that was like a, I think a lot of people's first contact with his style was with this film as well. So yeah, yeah like uh, pop culture. I think pop culture is pretty good this year, and that that does extend to games as well. I think that. The slightly weird thing about this episode, Matthew, and we talked about this off off air, but 
Do you think it's a problem for us that a lot of the era-defining 2001 games that our US listeners will be thinking about don't reach Europe until 2002 and therefore they avoid they avoid being on our list and they maybe hit the output of the episode a little bit? Do you, how much of a factor do you think that is in this episode? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's that's definitely a factor. I, if, if anything, it lets some other games breathe that don't mm. get trampled on. Um, but... Yeah, I, but it reflects it reflects the experience. I mean, it's a little bit bogus because a lot of my picks are things that I discovered quite a bit later rather than necessarily at the time. Like, mm. I think if this was an honest top 10 of what I actually played in 2001, you know, it was half a year of Perfect Dark, like I said, and then, you know, half a year of just sort of, sort of being excited about GameCube and, and not really buying a huge amount of other stuff. And N64 felt like it was really winding down, so... Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of that. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just a, uh, you know, s- something people have to deal with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> it, what it does mean is that 2002 will be a banger episode, so it will it will work yeah. out in the long run, basically. So uh, yeah, it should be okay. Um, okay, so uh, Matthew, any more reflections before we move on? I have enjoyed this. We've talked for 50 no, minutes about yeah, nonsense. It's, it's been yeah, good. I, f- I feel I feel like I've painted a um, suitably depressing picture of my 16 year old self <laughs> yeah i just imagine a man called Stuart going matthew there's still some ketchup on this fucking plate and then oh, just I mean, like that is actually like giving me crazy flashbacks <laughs> of what it was like um he used to shout service in a service and it's a bit kind of i'm not gonna do it apologies to any scottish listeners um, oh, um i kind of want to just like cut in loads of clips of fucking gary jules going mad world in here just <laughs> to see if it kind of freaks you out you know just listening back to it oh my stepdad's calling me i better go oh dear that's funny uh yeah this has been fun though i hopefully our listeners have enjoyed that weird sort of like chip down memory lane you probably understand a lot more about us from hearing that to be honest like you know our various personalities you're trapped with every friday when you listen to this podcast okay so major events in games in 2001 this is such a significant year you have the launch of the gamecube and the xbox in north america and uh, obviously in Japan as well for the GameCube. I don't know. The Xbox, I think, launches in 2002 in Japan, I think. And obviously those consoles wouldn't launch here. You have the launch of the GBA. So, you know, very significant. Um, you know, like a, the, the first sort of advance in Nintendo's handheld technology in more than 10 years, I think. It was a massive, massive wait. Unless, obviously, there's a Game Boy Color in between. But that felt very much like a stopgap just by producing mm. some really significant games uh gba um so obviously this was the one that didn't have a backlight so you couldn't fucking see what was going on this on the screen uh matthew did you have any gba based experiences this year uh no no i i, I didn't get a uh, get into gba stuff until like super late i mean the i think the first one i owned was probably the micro mm. um so super super late um i had to like throw my save my money and throw it in with gamecube i didn't have enough money to have both that's fair my friend Donald had a GBA, and he had original Mario Advance, which was rubbish, um, because it was the Mario no one cares about. I think it's just the go-in-and-out-of-pipes Mario. You, you don't, I don't think anything significant well, happened. Wasn't it that it? and Super Mario Bros. 2? Oh, okay, so it wasn't... Uh, so that's a really weird game, isn't it, that one? Yeah, that's the one which isn't quite a Mario with all the throwing turnips. Oh, yeah, that came up on um, on some episode we did, didn't it? Like, uh, I remember you talking about that moment. But, yeah, uh, he had that, and he had the Robot Wars game. And I played the absolute shit out of that Robot Wars game. It wasn't very good. It must have been made for about 500 quid. It was, like, very basic sprites, top-down, 
and then the robot wars is a huge thing to me as a teenager i'm sure it was to you as well matthew just like you oh know, yeah basically like who's your favorite house robot uh, uh i guess it would be matilda i mean matilda's a classic answer right um obviously it was a big hypno disc head i think a lot of us were uh, yeah at the time. I, I like the idea of hypno disc just because of the you know the big chainsaw looked really exciting hypno disc looked like the one that could probably fuck up a human the most <laughs> Like you just drive that thing into its ankles. Um, yeah, I had this. I had this. Ho- <laughs> Again, this has just popped into my head. I used to have this quite extended shtick about how I would rob a bank with the robot wars robots, um, and I would say that to a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, have you got any more information to share on how that would work, or can you not no, remember the just, details? Just that I would, like, as I said, driving the hypno disc into people's ankles. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that you know, it's kind of coming back to me. That's something I said twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, so kill a lot, casing the joint. You know, trying to. Work. Yeah, it was important to have like, you know, good, good. T- I mean, back then they, we weren't calling them takes, <laughs> but it was good to have takes. <laughs> Oh, I do also remember the sad day when um, that, like, I think it was like a one that had like a big claw in it, fucked up Hypnodisc. Uh, Hypnodisc, basically, if it didn't work straight away and tear the other ro- robots apart, it was basically fucked. Like, it was like just a big spinning thing and there was nothing else it could do. So yeah. if, you, if you could flip it over, it was completely fucked, basically. So uh, the, problem, the problem with Robot Wars is someone worked out quite early on that the optimal robot was just something that flipped things over, was just like that wedge. Yeah, basically, yeah. So the, and, it would basically just be wedge every a wedge every series would win was that basically. roadkill maybe yeah maybe but uh but i think that was one of the contests that's like the one that won and then everyone was like well to win you just build a wedge and then <laughs> get under a robot and then it's fucked every yeah. single time but hit that disc can't do anything if it's on his back you know? <laughs> yeah i remember my opinion of that show changing so much as i remember the first time watching it and when they would do those little post-match interviews i remember thinking these fucking dweebs that's the lamest thing i've ever seen but there was something <laughs> very very compelling about it let's face it it was quite exciting um this gba game was a proper five out of ten it only really captured a tiny bit of the the fun it did have it did have hypno disc in it if i recall though so you know nice. that was good but that actually it did also mean that i don't think it reached europe this year but it might have done but um the the biggest thing i wanted to play on game boy advance was doom i just wanted to see doom running on a gba because oh, right. that when they talked about porting that i was like i can't even imagine what it's like having a first person shooter in your hands that was like the first time that happened where it was that thing of i can't believe an experience i think of like as a, a pc modern gaming experience has been put onto a handheld right. so when he got when he got doom and we couldn't fucking see it because uh, as discussed there's no backlight on the gba the original gba um it did seem like a huge moment. It was really exciting, even though they took some of the gore out and stuff. It was, yeah, mm. Doom was weirdly a big game for me at this point. But um, was a, yeah. there was also that uh, X versus Sever first-person shooter, which I think was meant to be quite good. Yeah, yeah, that as well. That was like a bit, a bit more dry. It was sort of like very sort of like uh, white levels and just shooting identical dudes in it. But it, it was right. the same thing of like, oh, it's very impressive just to see this thing running on here. You know, same thing applied to Mario Kart Super Circuit, even though it wasn't like the the best version of that game. It was still impressive to look at but that was um i think that was the next year so uh yeah um gba could uh could hold its own um you had the end of uh, sega in the hardware market this year as well this is the last year of new dreamcast games i believe so it oh, does sort of run like... out for the dreamcast yeah exactly um obviously not something that we give loads of love there is a game in my list that is a technically a dreamcast game though so that will um oh, okay. hopefully you know give a little tip of the hat there to our i i, <laughs> I would have poured i would have poured out a little carton of apple juice for the dreamcast <laughs> 
Amazing. That fridge. Oh, dear. That's uh, that's such a funny, funny image. You're just going back with your big bar of chocolate and sitting next to your fridge, thinking about how people won't talk to you about fucking Perfect Dark anymore and like what a tragedy that is. It actually does make me sad because it's very relatable. Okay, what else happens this year? You have the creation of many new series. You have like the launch of Burnout this year. You have like Halo, obviously. There's like, there's, like basically countless series like Devil May Cry has mentioned that just start this year or have really significant entries this year some of which are still going today and some of which still define games today so a massively important year and like the list of games when you include those like games that launch in the us and japan this year it really is a banner year of just amazing stuff popping off so mm. yep yeah, really significant um have got a little summary matthew of the e3 conferences here mm. uh so i did fire through them um first up earlier in the year at ces uh the rock and bill gates unveiled the xbox to the world so that was like a, actually quite charming in retrospect, like a um, bit of like NAF uh, stage sort of like, you know, back and forth going on there. It's sort of when The Rock was slightly more endearing, I would say, and not like this sort of like, I don't know, Instagram figure I'm not quite sure about who's in terrible movies like back to back. But uh, yeah, he was in The Mummy Returns this year, Matthew. So it's a huge moment for The Rock. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you have Sega throw their weight behind the Xbox with the um, the Dreamcast on its way out. They unveil um, Panzer Dragoon. Uh, Gun Valkyrie, which is terrible, um, was going to come to the uh, platform, and Jet Set Radio Future as well, so really getting behind the Xbox. Um, Sony's E3 conference, really weird one. Literally some PowerPoint slides with white text on um, on black backgrounds. It was quite strange to watch this back. It was This is obviously long before this stuff was shown to the world, so it really was meant to be like a business conference for journalists and shareholders, I guess. So you've got like info about the ps2 selling three times faster than the ps1 apparently they got flack for not making ps2s fast enough and they had to defend themselves against that they're obsessed with online stuff at this online has become a bit of an arms race in this um this period of like e3s but honestly online the online dream seems so unexciting to me in 2001 and it seems so unexciting now looking back like the way consoles try to sell online was really boring there's SOCOM, they did get that going in 2002, mostly in North America, I think, but who gives a shit? Like, it just wasn't it wasn't a going concern for me anyway. Um, they announced a DVD remote. That was one of the big announcements at the show on the hardware side. Uh, Jesus Christ. Gran Turismo 3 was their big game coming up in July. Uh, they had trailers for GT3. Jack and Daxter was announced. They had uh, Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin from Naughty Dog on stage um, who would leave before um, the original Uncharted came out. And then they show a live demo of the game talking about how it compares to like like animated films and stuff it seems quite hokey in retrospect um there's a slide on exclusive titles from third party publishers one slide just has final fantasy 10 devil may cry mgs2 virtual fighter 4 and legacy of kane soul reaver 2 like fucking hell i mean like you know yeah. however you feel about maybe two out of the five of those games three of those are like enormous do you have any thoughts on that matthew yeah i mean it's yeah you, you just forget i mean when we were talking to like Dan Dawkins and Andy Kelly about covering games in the PS2 area and just having like masterpiece after masterpiece just emerge. Um, yeah, I mean, wild makes makes me. I you know it's exciting, but at the same time, it also makes me like super jealous that we weren't like there to cover it. You know, and, <laughs> and to 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 be working in games media at that time must have just been. I mean. That's just ludicrous, isn't it? Pre-internet, would that would be so much fun, wouldn't it? To just go play yeah. this stuff, come back, you know, put all your 
asset CDs in like a suitcase and then write about it when you get back. Like, yeah, sounds so much better than trying to fucking write previews in your hotel room at E3, you know? So yeah, um, yeah. So like, a, that's that's pretty cool. They have um, then they show Madden, who gives a shit. Um, then they have um, <laughs> Final Fantasy X and Spirits Within are both shown. They have a trailer for both combined. Then they have like Sakaguchi and like a sort of video um, presentation, and he looked really young, and I didn't realize he was thirty eight when he was in this, and he was like basically the head oh of Square. God. And like you know, it's like three years older than me. That's was... how old I am now. And how many <laughs> world-conquering JRPG series have I invented? And they were on the tenth one, Matthew. And like all of them were bangers. <laughs> Just ridiculous, really. Um, yeah, I yeah. don't think I've ever been involved in anything that people liked, uh, disliked as much as Spirits Within, though. That is so... true. That is true. That is true. But um, let's not rule it out. This podcast could go south. You know, there's draft episodes to come that could, you know, that could <laughs> could add to that list. Shinji Mikami comes on stage in sunglasses indoors to present Devil May Cry. It's very on brand. That's good. Um, trailer's almost impossible to see in this this video presentation. Just sort of like brown, occasional gothic architecture, a little bit of white hair. You don't see much in there. Then Konami come on stage. You've got Silent Hill 2 gameplay. Um, just looks incredible. Then Metal Gear Solid 2, which gets the biggest response from the crowd. Like The crowd don't respond to much, but they know who Kojima is. They get excited when he comes on stage. They applaud him. And they fucking love the trailer, which is nine minutes long. Incredibly obnoxious. The longest thing in the presentation by far. But everyone watches it. Everyone has a good time. It's a real um, a legendary trailer for, uh, among Metal Gear fans, um, this one. Finally, the PS2 network adapter. Who cares? And it ends with a SOCOM demo snooze. So that's um, <laughs> Sony, Matthew. But uh, PS2 here just pretty fucking dominant uh, was the, did the ps2 like loom large at all to you as someone who was playing games at the time were you kind of aware of it or were you just yeah, really I mean, firmly in your nintendo bubble yeah i mean like my, my brother getting one whenever whenever it was i can't remember which christmas it was that he did get one but um you know being able to sample quite a lot of stuff through that um again on the magazine front you know i absolutely loved listening to the um psm2 dvds with commentaries you know i can't remember if they they were doing those as early as this but you know listening to you know then unknown to me but the voice of dan dawkins talking a lot about you know sss tricky and things like that that's just a a real kind of instant time travel back to that period for me of of listening to like a DVD of five guys who all seem to be called the Dan talking about <laughs> PS2 games I'd never play, but like trusting that they knew what they talked, they were talking about, and you know, knowing what I know now about how podcasts and how these DVDs were made, that it's probably just a load of people winging it in a room trying to be funny with each other. But um, there were definitely there were at least two people called Dan on that commentary. <laughs> there was Dan Dawkins and there was Dan Griffin, Griffith, Griffith, yeah. Yeah, so it was Dan D and Dan G, and a lot of them had voices which sounded very similar. Um, so, okay, well, yeah, it's uh, it's funny because well, that, that's triggered a memory for me as well as obviously the PS2's other string to its bow was it was a DVD player, and so when I bought my PS2 and um, I got my PS2 for Christmas, the, one of the first things I went out and bought was the Matrix for nineteen ninety nine from W. H. <laughs> Smith, Matthew. So that was my first DVD, and I still have that DVD actually. So. Um, it stayed with me all this time later. Oh, it's good. It had some good good features on it, good hidden features as well. Yeah, it was that like big edition they did with like two or th- two discs or three discs or something. Yeah, just, I yeah. think there was some stuff where you could click on like things outside the menu and make things happen. 
Yeah, it was pretty cool. This when they, this back in the day when they used to put loads of effort into it, and when magazines would actually have pages dedicated to reviewing the films because they knew that was a relevant part of your diet. Also, they probably had advertisers they had to please, so that's probably why it was in there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, um, so that's Sony. Sony is very dominant. Obviously, Sega is already wiped off the map at this point, um, and uh, it would also dominate the generation to come. But um, you know, two major consoles were waiting in the wings. You had. Microsoft here. Unfortunately, their conference is not up to watch, as I say, but some of it was covered on that anniversary documentary. They couldn't turn the fucking thing on when they were on stage. Um, it would not switch on. Um, that's been preserved in the doc, thankfully. It's, I think it is in there, but it's pretty mortifying to hear about. There's um, there's quite a lot written about this as well by um, Xbox staff from the time. The games included the games included Halo, which they said made a bad first impression, but it looked pretty decent to me. It was the um, the mission. I think it's the Silent Cartographer where they land on that um, island and then there's like a big battle. It seemed like it was Ooh. in pretty good shape to me, and uh, yeah, so that was there. Uh, that's kind of the perfect demo level really for Halo. Um, Munch's Odyssey, which looks very cursed in retrospect, I'll be honest. Um, they wheeled out Lorn Lanning, an extremely handsome man, and um, Dead or Alive Three. Ex- they... <laughs> an extremely handsome man who makes games about extremely ugly heroes. <laughs> yeah. But he is, like, so strikingly handsome. I think Dan talked about him, didn't he? It's just like, wow, what a good-looking guy. Um, <laughs> Dead or Alive 3, where they wheeled out Itagaki. And I played that recently, and it is not very good. Uh, me and Jay Bayliss played that when we went to um, NQ64. And we went straight to Soul Calibur 2 afterwards. And Soul Calibur 2 is, like, night It's night and day. Like, the visuals, how it plays. I think it's a, a slight dud in retrospect, Dead or Alive. But um, that's just me. And... Um, nascar heat who cares there's an online focus in there um but it's like that larval boring early console era of online that makes you think who gives a fuck that's kind of like that's how, that's how i felt about it at the time i was just in a single player uh kind of uh, mindset they reveal a vague um spielberg partnership to time with ai that never comes to anything which is classic spielberg games bullshit right that's kind of what he does <laughs> comes along every now and then makes maybe whoa, whoa, boom, ma- blocks. boom blocks yeah but everything else i mean yeah a medal of honor technically as well um fair enough but uh, and then they uh, revealed that House of the Dead 3 um, was coming to Xbox. Why? What was the point of putting a light gun shooter on Xbox? I think it was one of like the only ones on there. And Crazy Taxi 3. So Sega were like massively behind the um, behind the Xbox. So uh, that's that, Matthew. That's that console that you don't care about. Um, no <laughs> you one didn't care about, about. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, uh, I'll go through this, Matthew, but I would like your commentary here because Nintendo is obviously your area. So... Um, GameCube was actually unveiled a year earlier at a press conference in August 2000. And back in 99, they actually revealed that they were working on it. It was known as the Dolphin for a long time. I remember reading in N64 and other mags, you know, it being called Dolphin, a lot of speculation about it for a long time. Um, mm. Have a water on stage. This is the most, like, I would say, conferency of the different conferences. They have this big the Nintendo difference marketing slogan, which doesn't feel like it really went anywhere. I don't really remember it that that well. But what I did remember when I when I saw this conference, I, I realized I'd seen this footage many times. Miyamoto comes on stage with the GameCube and the WaveBird controller, the wireless controller, and he says, "Let me introduce you to our new baby." Like all babies, it's small and it will make a lot of noise. Do you remember that moment, or is it just me who remembers that? It's like, a, no, I don't remember that. Oh, really? That's quite like I. I he's th- talking specifically about the WaveBird. No, he's talking about the GameCube in general. Like he's. Oh, well, I thought he was talking about the. I thought right. <laughs> no, it's for some reason. But I remember this because I remember the exact intonation of how he said "baby," and I was like, "Oh yeah." For weirdly, this is wedged into my memory from something i don't know why but um yeah uh, then there's um you kick off with a pr- <laughs> that is a really weird way to describe the gamecube <laughs> yeah it's small and it'll make a lot of noise i guess as in it'll make it like a big splash rather than like it's 
it was. Yeah, it'll make a lot of yeah, it'll make a lot of noise coming out of your TV when you plug it in. Basically, that it's was... like like all babies. It's small. It'll make a lot of noise, and it's got a convenient handle. <laughs> and everyone's like, eh? and it's purple, like all babies. <laughs> uh, um, the games, I think the games are pretty good. To be honest, though, the crowd is quite sleepy after a lot of this. Like, I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think they make a lot. It's quite boring for about thirty minutes. Wata's keynote speech is very dull, um, even compared to some of the other ones that were in this. Um, the really three. Then you get to like the an amazing Smash Bros. Melee trailer, which alternates between CG bits to characters and ends with some gameplay. It looks fucking so good. You can hear the crowd losing their minds it's quite good actually because it's been recorded on a handycam you can hear some like massive like a nintendo fans like american fans like commenting on what's going on and getting excited about it and that's quite nice when you're listening you're watching back right. this you can understand in in the moment how it, how exciting it seemed you know when i mean a huge I mean, if you compare it to like smash brothers on the n64 like the leap was was incredible yeah like what they did it was i can remember looking at it and thinking wow because we played so much smash brothers on the on the n64 mm. and you know we're just so used to it that you were like oh i sort of see that it's the same game but you know the gameplay looks like you know it looks like cg you know one of those dumb things you'd you'd say in a magazine well the thing is like i i, I don't um i don't think they'd revealed any gameplay before this conference of right of how things played so people didn't know what that generational leap looked like so they were experiencing it in real time in this in this recording and so you can hear them go wow when they see like you know just each character being introduced and their different animations in the battle screen and stuff like that and you know f-zero track where the cars race past and stuff like that so mm. it's it's pretty cool they're pretty cool to see that and the games just the games just look amazing as well they're just nintendo's version of this generation was visually very impressive you know so mm. luigi's mansion next luigi's mansion obviously had like the absolutely beautiful kind of like lighting and shadow effects you know just a really nice looking game um they did some magic on the gamecube to get it you know to, to get it playing that well it does not look as nice on the on the 3ds unfortunately um mm. it's quite a long section explaining how the wave bird works and um, that's quite quaint um you know because obviously we know how wireless controllers work now they also show off the tiny gamecube discs um, they boast about how much storage capacity on, is on them, even though it's like, uh, like a quarter of what the PS2 had. That was kind of bizarre. Um, right. And then they boast about their copy. like It's like copy protected, so you can't pirate it or whatever. And it's like years later where you can basically run all GameCube games on your Steam Deck. I'm like, yep, that really um, stood the test of time, that one. <laughs> um, then they show off Eternal Darkness. Actually, Eternal Darkness is quite a strange game to have at the center of a Nintendo conference. But Matthew, it feels like they were fighting that perception that they were a kid's, kid's company, you know, and they needed adult games. Do you think that was a bit of that with eternal darkness yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, it just it, yeah I, I don't know if they were like i don't really know the story behind eternal darkness i'll own up to that in terms of like where it comes from you know obviously i know like miyamoto's involvement and it's really funny to see all these patents with his uh, his name and dennis dyke's name on it you know you're like yeah um, <laughs> you know it's like miyamoto's painted insanity system <laughs> <laughs> that is very odd that sort of father of you know Pikmin also comes up with this stuff. Yeah, it just it just felt I don't know at, at the time it, it didn't it didn't jump out as like oh yeah this is this is like the antidote to something. It it just felt like natural like this is where games were at. This this is what made sense. You know, mm. it's that kind of slightly more like Wes said when he was on the episode that kind of slightly more kind of attitudey kind of era and so games with a a bit more of a, a sort of harder edge you know just seemed like the thing to do yeah that's that's absolutely right and then it kind of goes into metroid prime from there which feels like along similar lines because 
they very much frame it as this kind of like almost like aliens looking thing you know there's like a big monster and the samus standing on top of the ship and just you know it's quite intense it's not really gameplay but it just you know it sets the sets the tone quite nicely for what they would make so that's exciting to people um then you get to lovely old star fox adventures where someone from rare comes on the camera wearing a perfect dark shirt and you're watching you're there thinking no this is this is going to be over so soon you're gonna you're gonna be gone um (laughs) (laughs) uh, under the um under the control of microsoft obviously um shit canned game raven blade was also there that was a a doomed um, retro studios project um hack and slash thing um donkey kong racing uh i know that i know that turned into something matthew i don't really remember that game was that um, jet but that jet barrel racing or whatever it is maybe something like that i think i think it ended up being quite a long way down the line that came out then yeah i mean there was, the, there was the bad Wii one uh was it that oh maybe uh, maybe was that maybe a port of it i can't remember anyway but um yeah it certainly took a while to come out so uh yeah there was that um pikmin um they, there's quite a lot of pikmin in this presentation actually the crowd seems to love that um just like the oddness of it and then the little the character of it and how it looks people just seem to really dig it so um you know pikmin i think one of those series i feel like people were maybe slightly sniffy at the time about what it was and all these years later it's kind of like a bit of a giant killer now on um on switch you know pikmin 4 um thanks to fucking ochi um you know like uh basically ochi <laughs> is basically like the trojan horse to get people or trojan dog to get people more invested <laughs> yeah. in pikmin um so good for them um then uh, there's a montage at the end. Rogue Leader turns up in that, and everyone in the room goes, "Oh!" And they just cannot believe. Like watching like a B wing fly over a star destroyer, you can hear people just like, "Oh my god!" And then seeing them X wing going down the Death Star trench, and people just really fucking loving it. So um, that gets the biggest reaction of the whole show, I would say. Just seeing some rad Star mm. Wars stuff. Um, cameo elements of power um, would uh, have to wait a whole generation for that one to emerge on Xbox 360, of course. And uh, Zelda is just a repeat of the Space World demo, the year from the year before, which was the people might remember is the more realistic Link and Ganon, uh, Ganondorf um, fighting each other, which would create headaches for Nintendo for years to come. So um, yeah. showing that again seems like a bad call, actually, because in <laughs> August of that year, they would reveal Mario Sunshine. There's like a nice sort of tech demo of it of Mario running across buildings and um, you know doing flood gun related stuff. And mm. then there's the Wind Waker visual reveal as well, which of course went down quite badly. Um, obviously, history. Not with me. <laughs> well, I said history has not been kind to that take, but that was felt like the consensus at the time was that they'd made this kiddie game and people were expecting something that looked like that Space World demo. And that's enough talking from me, Matthew. Any more stray thoughts on that stuff? Oh, just that it was a great time. Mm. Um, so it's so exciting. I actually like, given the strength of that lineup and how good things like Rogue uh, Leader looked, mm. it, it's mad to me that like GameCube wasn't humongous out the gate. Like it, it, it looked really next gen. Like I think they'd they'd very cleverly made a lot of games which had made good use of of like next gen sort of effects like a lot of like lighting a lot of like stuff which was be- definitely beyond the 3d era so like luigi's mansion disguises some kind of like basic level stuff with just an amazing slathering of effects on the top and rogue leader on top You're like i think that's why you know in my head they looked as good as anything on like you know rogue leader looked like the best game in the world i thought at the time hmm. um but you know this this you know oh this is the power of it compared to the ps2 or compared to the xbox but you're like who cares look at look at the look at the evidence like these things are stunning yeah it's certainly stronger than the microsoft lineup you know the microsoft lineup's got like basically like two or three things you might be really interested in here it's just because they lost the third party game so much like the um 
Sony had just got so good at that. And if Sony had to like basically do what Nintendo did and build everything based on what they were creating in-house, so they would have had limited success. Like Gran Turismo and Jack and Daxter, but every other game that was at that conference was not their game. That's you know that's how yeah. they they sold it on other people's games, and they just and- Nintendo couldn't do that, you know. And and what happens with Rare is so strange, you know, to go from, like, they just make a run of the most beloved games. Like, everything they make, people think is great from this era, and people are really into it, mm-hmm. to just, like, uh, they're not really that important to us. You know, they're making these things people aren't really into. Like, whatever happened there, one, one of the great kind of mysteries. Like, I think they've found their groove again now, mm. you know, like, 20 years later. Like Sea of Thieves is such a good fit for their sort of sensibilities, and they've done really smart stuff with it. But a very like un- long, strange wilderness for them. Um, yeah. Basically, from here onwards. Yeah, it's like I'm sure this uh, this I think it was on the cover of Retro Gamer recently. They had like a rare celebration. I don't know if it covers this, but yeah, yeah, they just it just ends 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 that hot streak, um, and they just they're not really a going concern this generation in the same way, despite. You know, being like, you know, definitely number two to Nintendo on N64 by, you know, by miles. They were just hugely significant. So, yeah, it happening, that just felt like a Microsoft money bag statement of intent, right? It was like, look what we can do, basically. Look what we can take, you know? Um, mm. That's kind of what it felt like at the time. But you do wonder in retrospect, ultimately, like you say, the studio as it is now, I'm guessing, it just seems like a very different studio, you know? It's, it, you know, obviously it's going to be. They'll have some veterans, I'm sure, but. Obviously, mm. t- things t- things move on. Time move, moves on. I'm sure the values are very similar. I've, I mean, I've been I've been there twice, and it seems like a rad place to work. And people there seem really cool and really tuned mm. into the history of the studio. That definitely like runs through their veins. But yeah, it is odd. Just very 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 strange. Um, and Star Fox Adventures is kind of like a bit of a bummer game to go out on, isn't it? It's sort of like Zelda alike that was retrofit their old their existing N64 game into this new GameCube game that had Fox McCloud. Yeah. Quite strange, really. Um, Oh, yeah. it was cra- so crap, Star Fox Adventures. Yeah. Really. It's just an absolute duffer. And people refuse to accept that. Like <laughs> they, do, I think they do now, but at the time, you know, outrage when NGC... I mean, I think NGC were, like, generous when they gave it whatever it was, 78 or something. Right. Um Oh, that was a massive. That was a massive shitstorm, wasn't it? When they well, gave they gave, that? yeah, they gave. They famously gave out the sticker, which you could stick over the score to <laughs> you could go to give it the score you want. Um, so, yeah, yeah, but that was the, that was the thing because, like, for them to do that because they had didn't they have amazing rare access that basically the even the official mag couldn't get because they had like an in with rare basically. So yeah, they were just like I don't know if, if this because rare were considered a bit more grown up and so being sort of allied to the slightly older feeling unofficial Nintendo mag. But yeah, that relationship. I mean, in the N sixty four era, I don't I don't think there's ever really been anything quite like it. You know, at any other between another magazine and another studio. No, said off the top of his head. Well, mm. <laughs> just when you'd like open a a magazine and find like 40 screenshots of perfect dark in there and or whatever like it's just you know really like nothing else so um yeah yeah so i can't help but watch all this and think this is quite rad even with the like duff presentation of some of the some of the conferences like the actual stuff they show 
the makeup of games more generally, the breakdown by genre, this feels like a pretty fucking amazing time in games. And, you know, I don't want to say better than now, it's different to now. There's, like, things that we have now that, you you know, you didn't have back then. But also, like, no one's trying to pitch you live service hell, you know? Like, it's just, it, it just feels like a very different, a different time and exciting in a lot of ways. Like, all, everything that's at the centre here feels like it should be at the centre, you know? I'm not sort of, like, groaning at any of it, apart from maybe NASCAR heat and Madden, but that's just because I don't like sports, but... Yeah, yeah. So, some of the, maybe the early teething troubles of, of online not quite taking off on console and people asking us to be excited for SOCOM, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's like- the closest equivalent, but it's, it's nowhere near the same as it is now with you force fed so much stuff you don't want yeah like mobas and all kinds of stuff where you're like who's this for or whatever do i pick on mobas too much on this podcast no i just think it's funny that neither of us like it you know it's like this massive massive thing uh i imagine one of our listeners enjoys a moba <laughs> we just if you outright are the listener who enjoys a moba do reach out <laughs> yeah we just outright refuse to engage unfortunately okay we'll give you a section on the pod called so and so's moba corner where you, where you can give us 50 words on a moba that we'll read out every week <laughs> great stuff i'll look forward to that being our least popular segment ever on this podcast <laughs> Matthew, that was a really fun section. Uh, I really enjoyed going through that stuff. It was um, that was a, a nice little sort of like travel down memory lane. So, should we take a little break? Come back with our top ten list. Let's do it. ridiculous welcome back to the podcast so this is where we do our top 10 so me and matthew are going to alternate we're going to count down from 10 down to one if both people have the same game on their list then we'll talk about it whenever we get to the to its highest position relative to either list fucking hell i always struggle to explain that bit matthew <laughs> you're not a fucking top 10 is let's get on with it so matthew do you want to go first you're number 10 yeah i'm going to kick off with castlevania circle of the moon mm. um is this on your list? No, it's not. <laughs> yes, this is uh, It's the first Castlevania on Game Boy Advance, famously accursed with the, the bad backlight, as you said, or the lack of backlight. Um, there's lots of smarmy people who are like, oh, what's your problem? Dracula's Castle, too dark for you. <laughs> um, uh, which is like, you know, hilarious, but also kind of annoying um, <laughs> if you're into this. Um I came to this much later, I must admit. Like the Game Boy Advance ones, ones I I kind of visited after really liking the the DS one, uh, Dawn of Sorrow, um, Circle of the Moon. It's kind of an interesting one in that uh, Igarashi doesn't work on it, so it's kind of a clone of Symphony of the Night, but with n- not a lot of sort of no one there to actually like look after it. Um, it's why. The, the other two are held to be much better. Harmony of Dissonance is the, the first one Igor actually comes back to and starts kind of weaving his magic on. But as, you know, slightly wonky impressions of Symphony of the Night go, Circle of the Moon, still very solid, you know, a beautiful thing. I love the look of these these 2D castles, these little worlds, the little sprites, the little monsters. A lot of the kind of iconic building blocks are there. Um, this one has like an interesting card system where you collect... 
uh, a kind of like a sort of power card and then like an effect card and then you match them up and you get a new spell or ability or stat boost and there are 10 of each card so you know you basically have a hundred different combinations so the idea is that as you collect these things you're experimenting and a lot of the Castlevanias have this hook of you are like collecting weapons or taking the souls of enemies or you are learning new stuff along the way you know on top of their kind of core castle exploration action they have these you know this experimental streak um this one you know it's as, as fun as any other i guess the cards are maybe like a little abstract it's not something they go back to i think everything in this game has been kind of struck from the castlevania record by garashi he's like <laughs> i didn't work on it so it's not a canon castlevania um <laughs> Which is why, like, the hero, Nathan Graves, uh, never <laughs> never really comes back or is heard of again in any substantial way. But, um, you know, Castlevania on Game Boy Advance. If, if there wasn't interest and excitement around this game, we, you know, we probably wouldn't have got the other two. And then we probably wouldn't have got all the good DS ones. So, you know, we owe it something. Yeah, definitely. It's a, you know, it's a really strong lineage. Is this a launch game for the GBA, Matthew? I think it is over here, right? Yes. <laughs> I feel like it, I think it was. And then, yeah, like you, like you say, they're, they're a huge... It feels like the golden era of Castlevania games at this point in its lifespan is all happening on handheld, right? Like, it's not really yeah. happening on home consoles. So I think that makes sense. Was there some discussion when they did the um, the GBA collection that maybe these games like were built for a console with no backlight and that that was part of the, the visual style of it? Like it was built for the limitations of the GBA in some way? Oh, I feel like I saw I'm... that discourse, but... Oh, interesting. I don't know if I saw that. I mean, I have the advanced collection and think it looks great. I would much rather play them in that <laughs> format than in any other format. Yeah, so, under um... a lamp, tilted sideways. Yeah, not, <laughs> yeah. not the one. So... I mean, this is, I should say as a side note to this, generally an amazing Konami period. Um, This is like, for a long time, you know, now you would be like, Konami are one of the big players and people would kind of laugh at it. They've got such a bad reputation because of various decisions that have been made over the years. But like, I remember at this time, often thinking like, Capcom or Konami, that, you know, they, they felt like they were that they were kind of making games of a piece. Maybe that's just like a bit crude because there was like Resident Evil and Silent Hill and I was comparing those two. But Konami felt like a huge, huge, like very relevant thing to me at this time. Feels like they're halfway through some kind of revival, but hasn't we quite don't quite know how it's going to work out yet. But if, I mean, you know, they've but, got a long way to go. They have, and <laughs> even if if they get there, it's not going to feel like it did at this point. Where like I don't know, they put out like, the, the weirdo strategy game Ring of Red, for example, this year I think on PS2. They're never going to make anything like that again. You know, it's all mm. going to be HD versions of stuff you've played or new versions of old games, that sort of thing. So yeah, I agree. I mean, like you know, the the prominence they have in that PS2 conference says everything really like it's you know Mm. it's mgs2 is basically apart from socom is like the one more thing of that conference so uh Mm. yeah imagine following up mgs2 with socom that's tough um (laughs) okay matthew my number 10 ready to be shocked by a weirdo entry of mine um okay my number 10 is pro evolution soccer okay (laughs) so if there was a time where i gave a shit about football it was from about the late 90s to around 2002 or 3 i can't remember um and so I was like, me and my friend Donald were mega, mega into football games. We were like big into ISS. And then this comes along. It's the first PS2 Pro Evo they've done. It has some like ridiculous American name, like Major League Soccer 
All Stars 2001 or some bullshit like that. But right. over here, it was known as the first Pro Evolution Soccer, um, the winning 11 series in Japan. And it was such a massive visual upgrade. And it the thing about Pro Evo is it had a very, like, it's very sort of reserved visually. It wasn't like you bought it for the license or anything like that because it didn't have the license for a lot of the teams. There was a lot of, like, you know fake players and missing things and stuff like that it was it wasn't mm. authentic when it came to like the you know the sort of like accoutrement of football but it mm. was authentic when it came to how football actually plays and like you would have these very tense sort of like two nil encounters but it would be exciting because the ai is really good and like the nothing like random no random bullshit happens you can't score from the halfway line things like that it rewards strategy and um and how you play that sort of thing but had this massive visual upgrade with this amazing like uh replay um sort of like feature where you can sort of like move the 3d camera around and look at it from different camera angles it just it actually like as a it's the most excited i've ever been by a football game at, was at this moment and just seeing it on ps2 i had to have, i used to have to turn my fucking ps2 upside down because it was a blue disc so to get it to even run i had to like actually turn the hardware upside down ridiculous but um i think that was quite a common thing with early ps2 games and yeah i just um, i was just into football enough for this to be a big deal i played loads of this in multiplayer so matthew i know you don't give a shit about this um and it's, no, it's one mean, of it's like I know these games were massive, you know, my time at Future, they were still dominating lunch times, and I, I, I've never really understood, you know, because I don't play these games myself, like, I don't think I, I will ever fully get the whole kind of FIFA-PES mentality difference, mm. um, though I appreciate, would you say Pet is PES more like the Gran Turismo football? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so, it's sort of like, it's not... It's not arcadey, really. It's uh, thing is, it, it's it, like, like restrained and kind of gets it on a spiritual level. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, it just the way that it it plays just doesn't feel like random bullshit is happening. It feels like it, it's it plays like a game of football would. It just it, that it's authentic on that level. Whereas FIFA just kind of felt like oh they got like edgar davids right and you can whoop, whoop it in from the halfway line and in like in pairs every goal felt hard earned and like corners had to be good and you just had to like play yeah like say strategically and it just yeah it, it, and weird i think the reason that fifa's ate, ate their lunch is i think that pairs stopped being that and it started being frustrating right. to people but fifa uh, also had all the fucking money bags like licensed stuff you know so how, yeah how much of its uh inclusion in this has been influenced by that david beckham documentary <laughs> making you feel nostalgic for this era of football no you know, not much to be honest because like honestly yeah. we, we were massively into iss we played the n64 one which was pretty good and then we played the um ps1 one and just to go from like these fucking vibrating vibrating like Fabrizio Ravinelli sort of like fucking you know like polygonal models in PS1 to the footballers don't look exactly look exactly like the footballers but they look more like real people like that's that was like a just a major difference it was also just like how odd and sort of like Japanese it was like the menus were just so sort of like low rent and it just felt like unspectacular and off brand it was that mm. was kind of what was charming about Pez as well is it just felt like it just was it didn't even have a, it didn't even have a real footballer on the cover it's just some random like stock image of a football dude like a football player <laughs> of football, a football dude, dude. 2001 <laughs> so yeah i was i was speaking to honestly i was more tuned into my own team at this point I was, i'm a fan of portsmouth and um they were sort of like always flitting between i think they like got good got good this season i think this is the season they had um a player called prozinecki who was like a really good midfielder and they might have like this might have been the best season in ages or something like that and so i was quite into it on that sort of like club level so yeah the 
that it's not quite tied to that. I can see why you might think that. This is like, there's two football games on PS2 that are really significant to me. There's this one, and another one I'll save for another year, Matthew. But, um, is that yeah. red card? <laughs> I got quite into This Is Football 2003 as well. That was quite fun. But anyway, we don't have to keep going on about it. This yeah. is not your bag. It's all good. So what's your number nine? Um, my number nine is Uplink, the PC hacking simulator. Oh, great pick. My uh, introversion. Probably the introversion thing I've liked the most, or at least the one which has sort of spoken to me the most. Um, it's like, I, I think I picked this in one of the PC drafts, maybe as a wildcard. Mm. It came in almost like a jet black box with like nothing on it. It felt quite like illicit and weird when you bought it in the shop. It kind of sold itself on you are genuinely kind of in this hacking world. You have got a piece of hacking software. And even though it does like tutorialize it and, and have a, a narrative of sorts, like the thing it trades on is is trying to feel super authentic to what you would perceive to be an authentic uh, hacking experience. Obviously, hacking is incredibly complicated. I do not understand it one bit. This is more the kind of hacking as film show it you do a lot of things that you saw people do in like hackers or swordfish you know there's a lot of like he's pinging between the different nodes and all this kind of stuff and you're like yeah this sounds this sounds about right a lot of this game is about sort of methodical processes of using applications to crack quite a stripped back minimalist computer interface you don't like program anything as such but it's it's definitely not like arcadey like it like i say it looks it looks quite like legit and believable um a lot of it's about like buying money to buy programs or applications that you can run that kind of take the pressure off certain bits of hacking like password cracking or like a voice uh, analysis thing which lets you kind of use a, a sort of synthesize a bit of voice to crack a password um there's lots of stuff about like CPU usage, which I think is it's like it's almost like you know how you used to do power management in like a Star Wars simulator, like the ship stuff. Like where are you going to put the power to like the engines or the oh, shields yeah. or whatever? Your favorite game, Tie Fire, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it has it has a little bit of that, or the amazing spaceships in Starfield, uh, <laughs> uh, where like. You know, the more CPU you put behind a certain application, you can speed up certain parts of the process. So, like, if you're trying to kind of make something to defend yourself, you might put that in, you know, or you might put the energy into the thing, which is actually doing the kind of direct cracking and all this kind of stuff. And really, it felt like the puzzle of the game was kind of like working out what it all did and just learning to kind of pass it and learning kind of life hacks that you could you could almost solve certain problems or you could work out little processes that would always serve you well and you could use to kind of shave certain time off in times quite key when there are people like chasing you down and um it actually like i was thinking about this today in hindsight i wonder if it has like there's almost a through line to like sam barlow's games Mm. um in that you know, it's a believable computer interface. It's designed to look like something you've just booted up on a PC. But also that the key to, like, beating the game is just knowledge. It's just knowing a certain fact or knowing a certain process or knowing that, you know, if you hack this place, you can get into this place through that and, and things like that. And, you know, the game is about, like, learning it and 
it's all there for you to discover from like minute one. The chances of you doing that are quite unlikely. So a, a really like distinct thing, you know, I, I can understand why this might not be everyone's bag. You know, I was never very good at it and it isn't like like visually spectacular or anything, but certainly to see someone trying something quite experimental, you know, at a time where, you know, you know, quote, indie games you know, no way near the same kind of scene that you you have now. Something like this existing and kind of breaking through enough into the mainstream that it ended up on my PC anyway um, seems, you know, quite significant. Yeah, I think I read a feature in uh, PC Gamer Edge about how this was like one of the original indie games in some ways. Like it was just kind of like an upstart, but you could go, you know, you could buy this on the shelf next to everything else. And it was, yeah. it was, it was a significant moment because they're a small studio. I think they still are, right? Like they're not like... I think it's just a few dudes. I don't think it's like a massive, massive studio. They, they went on to do Prison Architect, right? Yeah, that's right. But then they offloaded that. And I think they're on a something called like The Last Starship or something like that at the moment. Um, I think like, yeah. Is the, that a thing that they physically built with all the money they made from prison? <laughs> <in the day? laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> they the, sold Prison Architect and now they're in space on The Last Starship. Like, yeah, that, that sounds legit. That sounds like something billionaires would do. <laughs> <laughs> Still my introversion memory is when I met one of them at um, Res and uh, they called me Graham by accident because he was the old editor of PC Gamer. Oh. That was quite embarrassing. Um, but yeah, for me, not for him, you know, because I, I I, I'm not called Graham, that's why. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure on the on the recent um, My Perfect Console where they interviewed Kieran Gillen, he talked about, like, I basically invented introversion by talking about their game first and bringing them into the mainstream. Like he, he took in quite a bold move, like a lot of responsibility for their success. <laughs> All right then, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, I'm not in gonna... the same way that I made Little King's Story. <laughs> <laughs> you made Hotel Dusk. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've 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 like played this very briefly, but it is like a it still remains a really cool idea for a game. You know what I mean? Like you see it written down, you're like, oh, that's actually rad. That's a great idea for a video game so um yeah yeah still- you could see someone making this now exactly the same way and people like not batting an eyelid like it, it just it's timeless because it is so sort of minimalist and the you know the aesthetic it goes for so perfectly captures like the computer interface and it, there's nothing to kind of go oh this is from 2001 really Mm, okay gotcha interesting i sort of yeah i do have this in my steam library i've got all of introversions games for some reason so um, i think i've put them all up over the years so uh yeah okay cool matthew good pick um nice bit of variety to the list bit of a uh, bit of your mm. pc experience at the time coming in there mm. my number nine is tony hawk's pro skater 3 is this on your list it isn't really okay i thought this would be i thought this would be because i think we talked about this before but yeah i mean you know i mean I... Pro Skater 4 is like my big into it. Right, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember... The, I mean, I feel like this is maybe the most well-regarded one or at least one of them. Yeah, it was yeah. certainly a big peak um, for the series because, uh, yeah, like, uh, well, for a few reasons. One, obviously, like, it it looked um, looked amazing uh, compared, to, uh, compared to 1 and 2, which were PS1 games. They sort of, like brought things along in that sense they also added like some kind of rudimentary online i don't think it ever happened here but um the key thing that that happened here was the revert they added to it which basically allowed you to do endless sort of tricks so um you could just basically string along combos forever basically and it was kind of like a game changer for how these how you enjoy this game just added like this amazing amazing skill ceiling to it and so much variety and um they also just uh also just like the 
I think like the visual upgrade just couldn't be underestimated, and it, this this series was just so so hot at the time, and mm. um, it was maybe like, arguably like the best selection of levels in there as well. The way that I think that this series just managed to develop was just through keeping those keeping those kind of like skills exciting. Like you did, they didn't need to do more at this point to keep you hooked. And when they got to get to later in this generation they do obviously struggle a little bit to figure out exactly where to take it and then the maps get too big and then they add like other features to it and like you know history has shown that keeping it pure is basically what people want so yeah i think it was um i think i just it was just really exciting at the time like i uh yeah i don't have loads more to say about it other than that it was like a great formula perfected for ps2 and obviously like you know in the uk well in the if you're in the us and you got to play this on um on the other formats as well i think eventually you did um there was weirdly a version of tony hawk's pro skater 2 they did for the original xbox i don't know what the deal was there but i think it's like called 2x or something um right. not sure what that that was all about um but yeah on ps2 this just this series was so dominant this is such a huge moment i remember this is getting like monster scores from everywhere and it was just mm. everyone i knew was just massively into it, it was the ultimate like play it for two minutes have a great time kind of game like perfect kind of casual game basically casual game easy to enjoy massive skill ceiling just as a reason that people still love these games all this years all these years mm. later you know so yeah and like just like a really joyful culture around it you know mm. like the personalities seem really fun like the goofy you know whenever i see memes of like the character select screen with people kind of like ambling on the spot you know that one where people do the kind of like select your skater. <laughs> yeah. There's a particular like animation they have for, or like you hear a bit of music that was in one of these games. And even though you know this is not my music scene at all because <laughs> it isn't either Randy Newman or the Divine Comedy. <laughs> um, you know I hear these tracks and it does whisk me back and makes me think. Oh yeah, this takes me back to my pretend skateboarding days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had like the likes of like uh, <laughs> AFI and Ramones on here, and obviously your favourite band, Body Jar, on here. Matthew, I know you're a huge <laughs> fan of those. It's just lots of songs with people going, "Oi, oi, oi, oi!" You're thinking <laughs> that Crazy Taxi. That's Crazy Taxi. Songs. You're thinking of, I think. That's basically the uh, Offspring song in Crazy Taxi. But uh, yeah, it is, it is a little bit like that. They, they, yeah, they were they were just huge, yeah, huge music, uh, like culturally probably in terms of games like they were the most significant in terms of music as well as games kind of combined basically like it's they had a kind of like a cool factor that most games at the time just didn't they just extended beyond mm. uh beyond dweebs like you and me matthew so yeah um, i wish they would remaster this game in four but it sounds like they're not going to do that now activision which is a real bummer so maybe maybe uh xbox will when they take over matthew who knows so yeah maybe what's your number eight my number eight is black and white on the pc oh i was hoping you'd talk about this one matthew castle classic yeah, I... <laughs> Yeah, it is a classic. It's something I really wanted because I really bought into Peter Molyneux's pitch of like, you know, it's going to be this, you're going to have this huge AI creature. It's a god game, basically, where you're a hand that manipulates the world, but you also have a giant animal creature who kind of represents your presence on Earth, who you train to do stuff. Uh, You know, if you play the game properly, you can like train the monster to sort of like automate things like collecting crops or feeding the people and it's it's a game that's fundamentally about like accruing belief in yourself by doing kind things for people so that you can get miracles or wonders i think they might have been called um which were powers which you could then use against like rival civilizations so it's kind of like i don't know a light 4x game in that it's about taking over a map and getting rid of other nations by kind of building up belief in yourself but with this uh, you know the pitch was this amazing ai creature at the heart of it that was going to like learn in real time and like 
what it saw you do and how it saw you behave would change like its moral alignment and you know a lot of ideas which kind of circle Molyneux you know he's he's into playing god he's into morality he's into consequences to that morality you know the a lot of these things are in fables still like i don't know if i ever fully clicked with it like the version of this game that i built up in my head like this couldn't possibly be that game Mm. but i remember like messing around in it for ages never getting that far in the campaign but feeling like i'd had a pretty amazing time like just observing the creature i was really obsessed with the 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 creature element of it and you know you could sort of if it did something good you try and sort of stroke its head to teach it yes good creature do more of that and if it was bad you'd give it a slap and it would bruise horribly it was like a i think you could get like a big monkey and a big cow and i just remember like slapping this cow and these horrible like welts being on its face i remember like beating up my creature uh, in this game because you know that's what you do when you're a horrible teenager <laughs> and I remember like my mum telling me off one time being like you know that's horrible like if you keep doing that you're not going to be allowed to play this anymore so that's just that just can't be the purpose of the game is like thumping a cow in the face <laughs> 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 and you're like you're like shut up mum you got an apple uh, juice out of your fridge you know <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a tough guy I'm gonna beat up on this cow and eat a tiny Kit Kat and drink a tiny apple juice <laughs> and it's like hmm maybe this is why no one wanted to be my friend <laughs> um oh. I really, that's my memory of black and white is, is like tormenting and sometimes being nice to this animal, basically getting frustrated at, you could stroke it when maybe in its head, it was already loading up the next action. So you'd actually be teaching it to do something else. And I was convinced that like, I'd see like, you know, my, my creature pick up some wheat and put it in a fucking barn and be like good creature. But when I stroked its head, in its head, it, it was actually thinking, I'm going to take shits everywhere. <laughs> so I was being like, yes, shit everywhere, creature. Shit, my creature. And it just shit in all the food, and all the food would become, like, poisonous because of these giant turds everywhere. And, like, it was just... It was very, very hard to get good results out of that game. Maybe my brain wasn't just sophisticated for it. Listeners of this podcast know, like, I'm not a strategy guy at all. And this probably, like, leans more into that. But the promise of, like being a mischievous god hand going around causing havoc you know that was a, a good sell um so <laughs> not the capcom yeah, version oh, of god hand like the actual god oh, no. hand yeah very no i, I have the hand of god yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i i've only ever played this in like very briefly and it's a real tragedy it's not on like gog like this would be such a great artifact to like pick up for six quid and give a spin right i mean right yeah it's a shame that it and its sequel because it was a sequel as well they're just they're just kind of like lost they're you can play the fucking saboteur on GOG, but not this. Like, what's all that about? That's, Very that's sickening. It is a little bit. Your yeah. hand would become more evil looking the more evil you were. <laughs> like, it would become all like red, and like the fingernails would grow. And I don't know what a good hand looks like. I was a pretty, I was a pretty neutral hand. I was a sort of a fence sitting, sort of centrist type even back then. So, <laughs> apart from the one time you beat the shit out of a cow and your mum told you off, basically. Yeah. <laughs> That, that that bovine related disaster aside uh okay that's really funny matthew i very much enjoyed hearing about that uh yeah they've got to excavate that at some point weirdly i had a science teacher who tried to bond with me over black and white but I hadn't played it so it's just like i've not played this game this is unfortunate if you'd asked me about red alert 2 i'd be like yeah yeah 
<laughs> Yuri's floating tank. It's got to fuck those guys up. Like you know, but he was steady. He was like, yeah, I'm just like you know, getting this this sort of like big dog thing to sort of do stuff or whatever. And I was like, okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fair enough. Um, okay, what's cool. your next one? Number eight, Pokemon Gold and Silver, Matthew. So it ain't on my list. <laughs> shocker. So, um, poker Pokemon Fever was over in the UK by the time this got here, really. So, when it, the year before at my school, in fact, it might have been towards the beginning of 2001 or the end of 2000, everyone had Pokemon cards. It, Pokemon was that huge. It was absolutely everywhere. And then this game, which came up, came along in the US a year earlier, took fucking ages to get to Europe for whatever reason. Like I think like something like two years it took to get from Japan to Europe. Like It's a massive wait. And in that time... I had become obsessed with Pokemon. I I started playing it like an emulated version of it before it launched in the UK because it, it sort of like tendrils has sort of like grown out from the US and I was like I have to fucking play this game. Um, got massively into it. Got like you know like I say earlier like watched the anime. Got Pokemon Blue, Pokemon Yellow. Was really digging it and for years was reading information about this game like uh, some apocryphal information some real information about they've added like pokemon breeding it's like a whole new world you can explore different gym leaders they've got new new sort of like uh sort of elemental types like dark and steel and all of these strange new pokemon and stuff like that it was like i would say that ex- tr- learning about pokemon gold and silver through like magazines and like forums and also old kind of like geocities sort of websites was probably more fun than playing the game itself uh, <laughs> like because you mm. you built up an obsession with this one world and these 151 pokemon that you knew and then for the first time there was going to be like all this other new stuff now when this happens people still lose their shit about like a fucking kettle that's got eyes or whatever people are like yeah i gotta say it's a very different experience when you can't read about that stuff online you can't just watch a live stream you learn about it through you know like you know basically like unofficial nintendo magazines and you're just trying to get little bits of information and piece it together that was actually a really fun way to to learn about this game i even played like the um like a rom of the uh the japanese original it just got i got to like the second gym before i was just completely fucked and didn't know what i was doing but um <laughs> that's how into it i was when it came along it it was very impressive like it it, it was it I feel like the big thing a lot of people talk about now is the fact that you had both worlds in it. Once you completely cleared the first world, Johto, you could go back to Kanto, the world from the original Pokemon games. And it was really good. I won't lie, the Pokemon effect had dimmed on me at this point. I just wasn't mm. quite as into it as I was. But it was also really nice to see one of these games on a, on my Game Boy Color screen looking really nice. Like These ones were actually made for Game Boy Color. The originals weren't. They were just original Game Boy games. And it was a really nice facelift. It was like it was just exciting to see this whole kind of like fiction expand in that moment it just seemed like such a huge deal and so now Mm -hmm. when i'm just sort of like so pokemon's just not really my thing but it's funny how at the time it felt like oh these games have come along they're clearly a much better version of what what we already had but also it feels like this thing is about to end and then it hasn't ended it's somehow evergreen pokemon but Mm. i remember at the time and i found some articles about this mainstream media saying pokemon fever is over or whatever and certainly for me i played these games i liked them a lot but then got my ps2 and that just as mentioned that's like the switch that's the turn that's where like things mm. just change permanently for me and my I game think, and taste i don't think that's okay i think that's the experience you're probably meant to have you know yeah like it's it's kind of creepy and unhealthy when people drag pokemon into their adult life <laughs> yeah well that was the thing i also just like hit this moment where you know maybe it's like going from like i don't know 11 or 12 to 13 where i was like 
oh um, this is not suddenly doesn't mean the same thing to me anymore you know yeah. so yeah that's yeah i'm you know when i'm when i'm a bit sort of snooty about you know how how childish i find it i mean that, that isn't to say that isn't beautifully targeted at children and younger people you know of that right age that you know it, it's about as good a thing aimed at a 10 year old or a 12 year old or whatever you know like yes yeah. it's, it's like you know yes yeah, so, so well judged and yeah, it's your introduction to the Japanese RPG, right? That's, yeah, it's huge, yeah. as um, as we talked about the episode with Jay, and like it also just felt insurmountably large as well. Like having two hundred and fifty Pokemon or whatever it was, might have been two fifty one, and then like there were like these birds to catch, these legendary birds that are on the front cover of the games, obviously. But then there are also like these legendary dogs who are just like running around the world. There's like this big red Gyarados in the middle of a lake, and it just it had more sort of going on. I don't want to say law wise, but it just felt like there was just a lot going on in this game. Whereas when when you'd exhausted all of the content of pokemon red blue and red and there was nothing left for them to show you it just it was quite intoxicating to suddenly have this whole new world in your hands so mm. yeah i hope i can at least capture a little bit of that in my description yeah. there matthew it was it was cool um but there is now a gulf i would say between this game and the next game in terms of like how much i like the games on my list so keep, oh, okay. keep that in mind as we go ahead but what's your number seven matthew my number seven is silent hill 2 higher on my list okay Yep. Uh, so well, we can talk. We can talk about why it's why it's lower when, when we get to it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's sort of like Matthew just hates dead wife tropes, basically. No, even I've at got, the even at thirteen. He, sorry, got, seventeen. He was like, "Fuck this," you know. I've I've got a couple of picks on my list which I think you are going to be much higher on yours, and it isn't me being contrary. It's like trying to reflect more oh, yeah. probably on where I sit on things now, and like some things have been replaced or I had like certain weird experiences with certain things. So I just, just want to set, you know, I think my next one, you're going to be like, boo, that's too low. <laughs> I've got a feeling it's going to be my number one, your next one. Let's, let's find right. out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we get to my number seven instead. This ain't going to be on your list. Onamusha Warlords is my number seven, Matthew. Oh, I did see it when I was going through the list of 2001 <laughs> games. I thought, oh, is that one Sam likes or not? So. <laughs> no, I do like this one. The, the sequels are better. But this is this was cool. This was Capcom basically applying the Resident Evil formula to a sort of like period Japanese setting and then adding loads of weird monster stuff to it, like monster kind of like demon lore. Uh, it was pretty a pretty cool idea. So you had these real historical figures and then, yeah, like this, basically this uh, Nobunaga, your, your arch villain in the game, makes this basically demonic pact and like controls this. Uh, mighty power and these leaves lots of uh, it's like well, that kind of weird demonic crust all over like a load of old japanese buildings oh, and then like don't say demonic crust <laughs> yeah, sorry. Again. i'm not selling it well they didn't have like demonic crust in the manual or anything like that that's my term very much so <laughs> right. um, so you had the fixed camera perspective of resi but with like melee combat uh, the funny thing is actually having just played um a whole bunch of resi code veronica x which will not be on my list i'm afraid i didn't didn't quite like it enough to put on here um but like um the, the controls in this are much better than in the original Resi. Yes, they have like the same sort of like, you know, slightly tanky controls, but they do move things along a little bit. It's actually like a quite a viable, decent melee combat system. Um, it's quite short. It's about six hours long, but it takes you to, I think like a mix of historical stuff and fantastical borderline horror stuff work really well. It's like some good creepy vibes to this and you get the sense of like you're coming into like this world in decay it very much feels like the sort of thing that Sekiro would tap into just the idea of like you know like uh, humanity has made has done something wrong here and now they're paying the price for it that's kind of like the vibes of everywhere you go in Onomusha um some really comically bad voice acting 
but really good mix of like yeah like resi style puzzles not quite as scary so i was i kind of appreciated that at the time um and then just like just looked really nice a really nice looking early ps2 game like it's this this game basically comes along just before like the avalanche of christmas stuff comes along and sort of blows it away a little bit including one game Mm. i'll talk about in a little bit um but it was pretty cool for the time and you know i think people have kept this series in their hearts as like a a, you know an important capcom thing that happened in the ps2 era matthew Mm. so do you ever play this one no uh i think this is the one i have played but not to any extent that it sort of sticks with me but i i love your enthusiasm from me Asha. it's one it is one of the reasons we do this pod <laughs> i think is from you talking about the second game at a pub and thinking oh this chat is could probably be a podcast so oh yeah well the second one just moves things along so much in terms of like audio and storytelling and it's, just, it's such a more, mm. a more ambitious game but yeah they definitely got all of the basics right here um so let's get to your number six, Matthew. My number six, GTA Three. <laughs> Higher on my list. <laughs> Higher on your list. You are gonna like, given what's my number like five. <laughs> that's it's gonna seem slightly obscene. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait now. Okay, uh, I feel like I've been talking loads now because I've had like basically several several on the trot. But um, Dora and Matthew, you'll get you'll get your moment when we come back to these games. Yeah. Okay, my number six is where I've cheated slightly. I've picked Shenmue Two which launched in Europe on Dreamcast in 2001. I did not play it until I got an Xbox in 2003 and I played the Xbox port they they brought to to that platform. However, I did want to put it in here because I actually thought that Dreamcast had a fairly good sort of like you know like sort of like outro they had a, f- a few kind of cool games along the along the way like um res and uh headhunter which i was kind of fond of at the time sonic adventure yeah. 2 not my kind of thing but people mm. seem to like it this though really is like the latter-day sort of masterpiece on dreamcast and i do think that shemu was much better experience in the moment than it would be to experience now so you know it's basically a kind of like life sim combined with an rpg combined with a fighting game i suppose that's basically how you describe it it's yeah. kind of its own unique combination of things so it's like boring yakuza <laughs> so you play um ryo hazuki who is basically like this young man who is seeking revenge on landy who killed his father that happened in the previous game and this game comes to hong kong looking for information on where to find him basically and i think this this it's hard to explain why this is so appealing but there's a kind of existential sadness to inhabiting this character's life in hong kong where he basically just knocks around looking for information getting entangled in people's lives looking through their drawers taking on part-time jobs to earn a bit of money like you know winning these capsule toys and just like this kind of downbeat sad life that you live in this game and you it could just it can just stretch on indefinitely it has a day night cycle you can just keep playing it and playing it and playing it i think like if you get to the end of summer and you've not gone to try and find landy in like the fucking forest at the end or whatever happens in the shimmy 2 then the game is like i think it has like a bad ending they were like what the fuck were you doing this whole time why are we just sat in an arcade playing <laughs> outrun <laughs> and uh and space harrier that's um which you know is again a massive part of the appeal of these games is they put sega arcade games in here obviously now yakuza is probably more synonymous with this because they've gone much deeper into the sega yeah. catalog and done some really cool stuff with it but yeah, so this was like I played this without having played the original. There was like a DVD. Oh, okay. There was a DVD that came with that gave you the fucking cutscenes from the original. I sat through that DVD. I had way too much time on my hands in the noughties. so I felt like at least I knew what was going on. 
And I did. I, it is quite appealing. There are so few actual fights in Shemi. That's the thing. You think it would find a reason to give you a fight every day. It wouldn't. It would give you a reason to do like fucking lifting back crates every day or running like the little lucky hit gambling game every day. Mm. But it would like never really. I feel like there's like maybe fewer than 20 fights in this game. And it's like for a game that's built using. I mean, that's like that's how many fights you'd have in real life, you know? <laughs> that, that is true over like a summer period. Yeah. Yeah. Like. <laughs> How many uh, fights have you had genuinely in your life? Uh, have you had any fights? Yeah, like four, probably. You've had four fights. I mean, not as an adult, but all as a all around this time. You know, like two thousand one time. Like I got punched in the face a few times. I got into what, like did five. Did you throw a punch? Did you throw a hit back? Did you make it an exchange of blows? Like I'd say, someone coming up to you and punching you in the face <laughs> isn't okay. Fight. You've got me there. That's that takes it down to two. Okay. That's <laughs> okay. But, well, you've had two legit fights. I've never had a fight. <gasps> Yeah, okay, felt fine. Um but yeah, I think it's that's a funny thing in this game. It is punctuated by like these big moments where you're like you go into a building, you, you you like get to the top of the roof and then Landy takes off in a helicopter and you're like, Oh fuck, I didn't get revenge and I kinda like the idea that Rio is this doomed figure who'll basically never get revenge and he's always doomed to just like be on the trail of this guy who killed his father and that's his life while living this quite small life. In, in these like random places right. with all these strange people. At the same time, you do also have to bring up the weird Shenmue of it all, which is to say, fucking bizarre looking NPCs who'll be like, hello! And like the dialogue will be like that. And they'd be like, no, I don't know where Landy is or whatever. You want to go to the Golden Quarter. And you're like, where the fuck did these find these voice actors? Some of the worst voice acting you've ever heard. I think it transpired that they basically just had to find English speakers in Japan where they recorded it. I think that's why the voice acting is so odd. It's, um, it's so yeah. mad given like what you know about the making of this game and how particular uh, Yu Suzuki was about it. Yeah. To like biff it in such a, a major way in its like localization seems absurd you know like the 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 eye for detail and accuracy and then to have that on top it is quite jarring it is as well because i think that like that's the version i played but my understanding is i think that there was no english language in the um in the dreamcast european version i think they just oh, okay. did japanese for subtitles oh, that's which what you want. yeah exactly which is much more appealing i assume the hd version you can get now is is the same but i will say to experience this at the time feels felt quite special like even by the time it arrived on xbox it was slightly out of date i would say like it's it's yeah. almost like it's almost like a version of an open world game that just didn't tra- turn into anything you know what i mean it's like a dead end an evolutionary yeah, dead end yeah and like you know gta 3 becomes that instead so but it's it was fascinating it had so much texture to it and it was just like it had detail in all these strange places and that's that's kind of what made it great so um yeah yeah shout out for them matthew you've got any yeah, any yeah, experience no, with the series yeah but really after the fact you know um something i coveted so much reading about it in games master because it just felt like total world simulation you know the way they talked about it made me think it was you know a village every house down to the drawer modeled and it's sort of that i mean that's it's not quite that but by the time i did get to it it maybe seemed more quaint you know it's it's got immaculate vibes mm. always you know like i think if you come to it now it's very easy to understand like why people have fallen in love with it and it's very sedate tone and like there there is a bit of it in hotel dusk and the sort of sing games in terms of like just a really mundane setting and people whose lives are just 
like really not worthy of being in a video game you know they're so unexceptional mm. um and and that's what makes it feel so so special but um it, it's definitely a game from this period which yeah you maybe had to be there to a degree and i wasn't yeah i sort of get why if you were playing this and fantasy star online on a dreamcast in 2001 or 2000 um well, no, oh, just you'd do that. be absolutely awful online now. Is that what you're about to say? <laughs> yeah, I can understand. That. <laughs> well, yeah. what I was going to say, just to end this on a sincere note and not to dunk on the Sega heads yet again, Matthew, <laughs> which we have, ends up happening a lot on this podcast, is that it does feel like a summary game of this era of Sega of Japan, right? It's like it's a whole generation. It feels like a whole generation of game creators going, this is what we think a masterpiece is. This sums up our sensibilities our ambition what we think is important about games is in this and that's what i think is special about Shenmue. like it does represent that moment so well you know and that that intent so um yeah there you go matthew um but if you do want to dunk on the sega fans one more time be my guest no but... i don't want to dunk. I've, got against, <laughs> I've got nothing against them they've got something against me it's just you know it makes me want to kind of like you know defend myself aggressively with poorly argued opinions <laughs> <laughs> well um let's get to your number five instead matthew so my number five, and this is a game which, remember, is better than Silent Hill 2 and GTA 3, <laughs> is uh, Conker's Path Further. Yes! Yes, let him cook, let him cook. Uh, I mean, this this is, like, of, of the things on my list, this is a really genuine 2001, like, obsession of mine. Hmm. Like, reading about this and all the pop culture it was parodying, you know, it, it, was, just, it was just built for 16-year-old Matthew. You know, it it had parodies of Saving Private Ryan and The Matrix and Alien. These were all things I thought were really, really cool. So, of course, I wanted to play it. It's aimed at 15-year-old boys. It, you know, it is, if you don't know it, Conker, this sort of lovable little squirrel, um, goes on a massive bender, wakes up, and his girlfriend's been kidnapped and he basically has to go on an adventure to get her back. And as he kind of potters around uh, this sort of 3D world, he ends up going through lots of different kind of parodies of of other films, other games. Terminator's also in there. Um, it looks like it should be a Banjo and Kazooie-style collectathon, and the fact that it comes from Rare would suggest that it's going to be that. It actually isn't. It's It's like... There are worlds to explore, but what you do in them is quite fixed and linear. Your progress is is very kind of shepherded through it. It isn't like you're not going back to worlds to kind of clear them out. It's you've got very sort of set tasks. Um, interestingly, like on top of like the basic platforming moves, his his main move is this context sensitive thing with the A button. Like whatever, when you stand on these pads, the A button enables him to do all kinds of different actions, and it actually lets each set piece be built around something very different. So if you're fighting a giant opera singing poo which you famously do in this game um standing on the context pads lets you throw giant rolls of toilet paper into its gob but like there's another level set in hell or there are these fiery demons everywhere and standing on the pads lets you take a piss and then you start pissing all over these fiery demons so like Every set piece, they can build a mechanic, whatever mechanic they need to make it happen, which I think is actually quite interesting, you know, given that we'd had a lot of these quite stodgy collectathons from Rare, to have something which was like a lot lighter on its feet, if, it, you know, indeed it was very bawdy with it. Um, I, just, I just 
I thought it was, you know, super interesting. Like, going back to it, I uh, played a bit of it in, like, Rare Replay or whatever, and it's quite hard going. It's really difficult. It's quite frustrating. But back then, I, you know, I really wanted... I remember, like, not having enough money for it because it was, like, 60 quid or something ridiculous. And, like collecting coins from down the back of the sofas at home and taking them to the bank to turn it into like cash money you know i was that i was i was literally scrounging down to the penny <laughs> to have enough money to buy this obnoxious game right um and then when i did got it i got really stuck on the saving private ryan level like there's a bit you have to run through the beaches on like a d-day landing type thing and it was so hard i thought i'd never be able to get through it and actually get to the matrix bit which is what i actually wanted to play um so Quite a frustrating game to be this high up on my list, but I'm not going to lie, it was a big part of my 2001 life. It was, like, hugely exciting. I mean, I played this for the um, for the N64 draft we did ages ago, and right. it does feel like what a hangover feels like. It feels like when you're playing it, you're like... Because <laughs> it is cursed, fundamentally. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does feel like it's a subversion of games that Rare has made, like you say, like the, you know, the Banjo-Kazooie type of game. Indeed, it started life as something much more sincere in that in that vein then they flipped it there's already there's a game boy color game that is a conquer game that is much lighter than this and you know is like a trad platformery kind of thing um but it seemed really illicit and cool and especially if it hit you like teenage to a teenager this was like an object of obsession you know what i mean like you had to see it you had to you heard about these moments like you say, the big poo and the big singing poo. And you're like, I have to see that, you know? And the context-sensitive thing is probably, like, the most progressive sort of design touch about it, right? Like, that's, like you say, like, it yeah. sort of separates it from other Rare games. It's, like, it's actually, it's a bit closer to maybe how games would be designed now, you know what I mean? Like, it's, like you say, lighter on its feet, it's contextual, it's, yeah, it's a cool Ooh. idea. Um, so, yeah, I do think this is a, a good suggestion. And, like, yeah, it's it's also sums up that kind of slightly odd end of the N64 era as well. Like, this, you kind of got this. You've got Paper Mario, which is, you know, hugely significant in retrospect. Maybe that'll come up on your list, but I think you have no idea. But you got that. You, and then it's, like, Pokemon Stadium 2, Dr. Mario, and then basically Tony Hawk games and football games. That's kind of it, really, in wrestling. And it just sort of goes mm. away, the N64. It really just, just sort of peters out. So um, this is kind of the most exciting thing that's happening this year, really, on this platform. So, yeah, I think this is a good pick. Um, Apparently, uh, yeah. they had a famous E3 stand for Conker's Bad Fur Day where they gave out, like, pints of beer. Right. Um, which I uh, vague memory of Kitsy or someone telling me about on End Gamer of like, oh, E3 was this. This is one way it was different that you could have a beer tent in the middle of the thing to advertise Conquer. Right, right, yeah. It's sort of like because uh, it was published by THQ, right? I think Nintendo just de- yeah. declined to have any involvement. <laughs> yeah. It's cool that this has been salvaged, basically uncensored, though for the um, for the rare collection. That's it's a good. It's good that you can go out and get this. That's um, yeah, nice. That it's, it's been very, preserved. Like if you if you come to it now and play it, you know, always this isn't a 30, 38 year old Matthew uh, <laughs> endorsing this game and saying that everything in it is like top draw and it's, I like it. It's all. quite horny in a very Naughty's yeah. way, but it's, yeah. it's got it's got this. But there is a real British sort of like seaside end of the pier kind of element to it. Of like, <laughs> it's very boy, it's quite carry. But is that you know? good? It's is like, that good though, Matthew? Is that is that good? No, but it, I will say like it is like there is still something distinctly like rare and British about it, which mm. I think is is quite endearing. Um, yeah, 
He had yeah, to be I, there. This, yeah. this seemed cool. Going around a friend's house and playing this, I was like, I can't believe I'm finally going to see what this fucking game is. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, yeah. Good pick, Matthew. I like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So my number five is Jack and Daxter: The Precursor Legacy. Did this make your list, Matthew? It didn't. Though I, I have, you know, I know I, I dunk on on the non Nintendo platformers, but my brother got this for Christmas. I played loads of it. Um, technically, like very impressive. Yeah, that's the thing is it had this like continuous world. It was funny hearing um, the Naughty Dog co-founders at E3 conference going like the t- the team who made Crash Three have been hard at work on this. And I was there thinking if Matthew heard this, he'd just crack up, you know, just like yeah. the idea of that being a thing that would get you excited. Um, yeah, so it it was like a, basically, I think like the whole deal with uh, with Naughty Dog and Insomniac is that they were tied up with Universal at the time, and then basically like that's why they're they didn't own Crash. Sony didn't own Crash Bandicoot or Spyro, and they ended up being in Activision's hands because it ended up passing to Vivendi and all that kind of stuff. So they were like, okay, well, we're just gonna, you know, um, sort of like uh, team up with uh, with Sony, be acquired by Sony, and make this all new platformer series. Can't remember if they bought them before this, but it was it was around this time, I believe, that they became part of Sony. So teamed up to make this new universe. You got Jack, a silent protagonist with the, with the bright yellow hair. There's a very irritating companion, Daxter, who's actually a human who got turned into this weird, uh, like, uh, otter and weasel creature combined. Um, they go around. They basically have the Crash Bandicoot spin attack, but you're, you've got, like, a full 3D camera, and you're going through, like, a full 3D world, and there's no loading screens between any of the parts of the island. It was very impressive in that respect. It did look nice for the time. Um, I was I was I got so excited about this at the time because I had a demo disc that had this for ages, and then I I think it was like 2002. I ended up like just getting it for like 10 quid or 12 quid from some secondhand shop, and finally it did live up to the hype. I thought like that it borrowing the sort of Mario Stars thing for all of these power cells that you found around the world did work quite well. You really would explore an area and exhaust it until you kind of moved on, and I think that created quite a nice relationship between you and this world. This it was like about discovery more than like set pieces. I would say uh, you just pretty cool like i think it sort of like just sort of like slams to a conclusion like the the overall playing space isn't that big um you'll see it all in probably like i don't know six or seven hours or something but it was it was pretty cool it's like a halfway house between what crash bandicoot was and what nintendo was doing i did think this was pretty this was pretty strong at the time there was a reason mm. there was a reason people got excited about this so uh yeah not much more to say matthew because i think we discussed this one before but um mm. yeah jack and dexter there okay uh so what's your number four my number four is Paper Mario. Nice, not my list. Yeah, I, again, I didn't play this at the time. Um, like, I think I spent all my money on Conker's Bad Fur Day. <laughs> uh, so, uh, coming back to this later, I played this after Thousand Year Door, which is probably a bit, a bit unfair on Paper Mario. Like, it's it's very much like the first go at something, which Thousand Year Door and then later Paper Mario's obviously sort of build on. But uh, a lot of the magic of it's here, you know, famously, they make Mario RPG on the SNES. Things go south between Nintendo and Square, and uh, Mario RPG 2 is no longer on the cards. So Mario, uh, Nintendo make their own Mario RPG series, Paper Mario with Intelligent Systems, um, adding this brilliant 2D effect. So 2D Mario paper characters in a 3D world kind of leaning into the kind of arts and crafts stuff which now is so commonplace in like especially nintendo first party games they've really milked that but back then kind of a a bit of a wow factor to it um a lot of its rpg systems are lifted from mario rpg uh in terms of like 
uh, action moves which are uh, amplified by like playing mini games or hitting timed button cues um that's all very familiar but it works like it it helps turn the the kind of repetition of the of of a turn-based combat system into something that you're always actively engaged with like i will i will never sniff at that you know there's a reason it's in you know the yakuza like a dragon say like i think it just it's a little extra bit of something for your brain to kind of kind of connect with which i like um like i know i say this all the time about paper mario and mario and luigi but you know the pleasure of these games is them taking a world which is quite surface level and superficial you know it's full of iconic things but we don't really know what any of these things are really about and it delves into them you know what what is it like being mario or luigi or peach or bowser like giving them dialogue letting them like voice opinions and have little lives right down to the enemies you know, yes, tick off psychology of a Goomba on your bingo cards. Hooray! That Simpsons meme. Hooray! That's yeah, <laughs> say the thing. Say the thing. Um, yeah, but it is that. Like that. That I think that is a huge part of these these games. Is it kind of looks at something which is you know quite abstract and unknowable and goes, well, what what is it like? Almost like between Mario games, what are all these things like? What does a Cooper do? What does a Cooper think? And I'm not saying it, it answers any of those questions in a, in a like particularly profound way, but uh, like I, I think it's a really sort of cute postmodern twist on on a you know a giant license that didn't need to kind of go down that route and investigate these things. And it's certainly what gives them a bit of like narrative spice, or definitely the humor of these games is is just being able to interact or the fact that mario partners up with lots of other like enemies in the game or, or like children and like y- like a young goomba and a and a para cooper, a para cooper and uh you get to work with things you get to use their powers in battle you get to use their powers to solve like light platforming puzzling like i don't think any of these games are like any great shakes as like technical like jrpgs hmm. i think they're, they're quite like basic and designed just to be sort of churned through and enjoyed you know i don't you know i know some people hold thousand year door up to be this like great masterpiece i don't think there's that much in it um really between a lot of these games but um yeah paper mario like still worth going back to i think you can play it on virtual console now like you could definitely play it on older virtual console which is how i i played it on wii or wii u i can't remember yes uh now you can play it on wii u online subscription i think and it's still you know i'd say there's enough of the magic there that if you're into these games you could probably you know do worse than than going back to them yeah and i think you tap into a good point with the the fact that you know there was this break-off point between square and nintendo like that meant the n64 had no rpgs on it basically like it just it was completely you know sort of like barren for that genre so the idea that nintendo were like well okay we'll make them ourselves then that's you know quite it, this is a very this is a you know a series that people love and has really seemed to us to the test of time i know that thousand year door definitely cast a long shadow matthew but you know they've kept going and they've kept they kept them at pretty high quality so pretty yeah. cool that late in the day on the n64 they hatched what their version of a modern rpg looks like you know that's yeah pretty neat so uh yeah, yeah and like so much heavy lifting's done here so you know while thousand year door you know it, it's definitely more sophisticated in some of the stories it tells and some of the areas it goes to like the core of what it is like mechanically it's all here mm. you know like there's it, it, really there's there's not much different between this and 
and what follows. Okay, gotcha. Well, that's a, a good pick, Matthew. Quite quite, oh. quite diverging lists, apart from the games I rate that you've put uh, low down. But yeah, all good. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm really joking. Okay, my number four then. Devil May Cry. So, this is genuine innovation. This is like the birth of basically a new genre. Now, there's definitely like, you know, there are links back to the likes of Golden Axe or Strider with Devil May Cry. Hack and Slash game. But translated into 3d and done with this much panache that was what was spectacular about it so my understanding is matthew this game like it's key mechanic of you like scoop an enemy up into the air with your sword and then you shoot them with handguns and juggle them came from a glitch a bug in onamusha where that would happen where you would swipe an enemy and they would get stuck in the air basically just being repeatedly damaged so seeing that they basically turned that into a game series that would become much more popular than onamusha so um that's quite fortuitous you play as dante this demon hunter and it's basically you and this um, this woman uh, wearing a very tidy top, going into like a big gothic castle, um, fighting these like weird puppet monsters, these big like um, kind of ghostly Grim Reaper style monsters, massive boss battles. Comes out of the gate with this really confident visual identity. This character where you're like, okay, this guy is cool. This is a this is a cool character. It's a dude with white hair and big red jacket. He's got swords and guns. Gives you a pretty decent armory. This is a very basic version of the Devil May Cry combat paradigm. Three is the really key one when it comes to moving that forwards and giving you the different uh, sort of like classes, basically, like the kind of like, you know, the trickster class and um, Royal Guard and stuff like that. Things that would really give you the versatility to keep playing it and playing it. Um, I would say there aren't like as many reasons to replay this one as there are as to to some of the later ones. I played the absolute shit out of three, um, but one Mm. was still excellent. And it just, it was kind of everything that, it was just in 2001 this is just incredibly exciting i can see why it was like why it was a huge deal um it started life as a resident evil spin-off and became something else devil may cry man it was super super cool um loved it and like i say like when i saw it on the cover of opm i was like what is that i just need to fucking see this i need to play this and ended up being a huge deal to me and my gaming taste matthew so uh any thoughts on this one yeah, I, I I came to this series quite late, or rather, I rented it at the time. We rented Devil May Cry One, and I just I like there was nothing else like it, like you say, and I didn't really know how to kind of like sort of deal with it. <laughs> you know, I didn't really know what I was meant to make of it, and I'm not saying it had a steep learning curve, but like the pleasure of that game, like the mastery, it wasn't something that I then appreciated more generally with games as much as I do like now, mm. say. Um, so it's it's like an, an individual entry that I've had, you know, I've played through it, but you know, no, uh, you know, I could never make this game look look particularly good. But I'm definitely more familiar with later entries, just due to like easier access to them or whatever. Like I, I really love Devil May Cry Five. I thought that was absolutely tremendous, and DMC is obviously good fun, quite quite different in its own way. But um, yeah, yeah, I a, a good pick. Um, yeah. You know, I would, I would, you know, in a kind of, in a, in a head list rather than a heart list, you know, this is easily one of the games, one of the year's best, but um, it just doesn't necessarily have that direct meaning to me. No, it's fine. If you come to the series later as well, like, I think the the big gothic castle setting is cool. That is, that is kind of what is distinctive yeah. about this one. But um, it's like, it's odd in some other ways. Like, it's, it apparently it was, it was 
it was originally you can tell this how the, the way the levels break down it wasn't meant to have levels it's meant to be like one big continuous adventure and then they added levels which is why all the missions have weird objectives like open the cathedral door and that's kind of all you have to do in a mission and so they can be end up right. being super short <laughs> and that's because it was meant to be just one big castle you could explore i think and then unpick it you know resident evil style figure out where you're going right right um so they added that quite late is my understanding it also ends with like a like a 3d on rails shooting element like the final boss is like you're kind of like flying and you're fi- you're firing orbs at this big thing in the distance it's, it's you know bayonetta has like bits and pieces like this as well you know continue the Kamir thing but um it does mean it ends on a slightly sour taste it's not there's not really a reason to play this one out unless it's like raw curiosity but definitely in 2001 this was the big deal it was much sexier and more exciting than onamusha was so uh even 90 that at the time is a big onamusha head so yeah um, what's your number three, Matthew? My number three is The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Seasons. Nice. Is ages going to be your number two? <laughs> uh, well, you'll have to wait and see. <laughs> but remember what I'm about to say. <laughs> we, we shall see. Yeah, so these are Oracle of Seasons uh, alongside Oracle of Ages, uh, two Game Boy Color Zeldas, carrying on the, the lineage of Link's Awakening, you know, in terms of, you know, a lot of the... The kind of assets seem similar, and obviously that kind of top-down feel. Oracle of Seasons is set in the world of Hollow Drum and hinges around a seasonal power-changing rod. The Rod of Seasons is an easy way of saying it, which lets you change the world to different seasons, and different elements of the world change with those seasons. So, like, in the summer, vines grow, and you can climb up them. In the winter, there are lumps of snow that you might be able to climb over. So, you know, the, the world changes in in a few ways in the different seasons, which is kind of like the big hook of this game. What I love about this is, A, it's just more Link's Awakening, which I think should be celebrated. Like, it's I really love the look of that game and the kind of controls of that game are, are really, really nice. It's a really substantial adventure. It's got some great uh, gadgets in it, which is even more miraculous given that there is this other entire game. You know, they made two huge Zelda games. They were at one point meant to make three huge Zelda games. They were meant to sort of represent the three bits of the Triforce. But you know, if you, if you are into those games, I feel like it's I feel like it's a Zelda, which even though you can play it quite easily now, I don't know if it's on the Switch Online system yet. I discovered these games on 3DS Virtual Console was was when I sort of first played them uh, back on O and M. So only quite recently, which is maybe why they sort of stick in my head and seem seem better. But um, a, a great 2D Zelda game with like this quite fun visual flourish sees the introduction of Fujibayashi, the director, who is now Mr. Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. These games that were sort of made in a collaboration with Capcom. I don't know if he was a Capcom guy originally. I don't quite know if that ha- that's how it works or if he was just the Nintendo guy embedded in the, the Capcom team. But he ends up being a, a really important figure. Maybe this is just forcing a narrative onto these games but I think almost like away from the main entries, he was allowed to have a little bit more fun. Like he introduces new races in these games beyond Zoras and Gorons. This one has like the Subrosians who are this sort of race that live uh, in this underworld kingdom called Subrosia, which is all very strange. You know, it adds new uh, equipment that wasn't in previous games, like the Seed Shooter and things like that. And you just get the sense of like someone who's, 
been allowed to kind of have a little bit more fun and sort of experiment with it and i i think you can see that in the like the mainline zeldas that he's also worked on like he's very interested in puzzle design and and fun gadgets and gizmos and i do think you can see the beginning of of that lineage in some quite weird form in the oracles games yeah, so, um, I, you know, if I could send any games back in time to myself in 2001, it would be these, which I asked right. for it on, like, two different Christmases and didn't get them. Like, I was oh. hugely into Link's Awakening, and these were, like, you know, like you say, they are almost like ROM hack-type games, really. Like, they look very similar. <laughs> they use some assets. They must have been, like, budget-wise, quite tiny to make, although, you know, they are made for Game Boy Color and, you know, in seasons yeah. as well. The way the world changes is, is very... It actually really makes the most out of that hardware in a way that few mm. games do for the system. So it's a really beautiful looking thing. These basically, they are available, by the way, Matthew, on Switch. I checked. They were in um, oh, cool. Ju- July. They're made available so you can play both of these on Switch, which is really cool. Um, yeah, so I, I've I've played some of Seasons. That's kind of like as far as I've got. But like I feel yeah. like it's, it's, it is something I will finish before I die because, they, because of their connection to Link's Awakening, you know, visually and mm. in terms of the audio and stuff like that. This, they're like... They're not asset flip games, but they are. I don't know. Their relationship to Link's Awakening means you just have to play them. I think at, at some point, mm. if you're a fan of that, those that game. So, um, yeah, um, good stuff, Matthew. So, um, okay, cool. Your number three. My number three is Silent Hill Two. Ah. So, Silent Hill, the original. I've played it once, and I just got battered by monsters, and I didn't know what was going on. Um, and I found it utterly incoherent and I thought, oh fuck, have I, is this just too old for me to enjoy now? Silent Hill 2 is an immortal uh, survival horror game. Uh, it's because it's mechanically quite simple. It's like a mix of like light combat, you know, melee combat and also like, you know, sort of like guns as well, but, you know, not that intense. You can whack the difficulty right down and just absorb the vibes if you want to. And I do recommend doing that. Like, I think you miss out on... You can, like, set a puzzle difficulty, then set a combat difficulty. So whack the combat difficulty right down and just kind of go through it that way. That's how I played it a few years ago, a 2016 kind of time. Emulated it, and the the PS2 original is just just something amazing about how they do the the fog effects in it and the, um, the kind of, like, visual filters and stuff like that, the very grimy way this town looks. So why is this game just held in such high esteem? It's because it is the mother of all, like, textured, rich horror storylines like it's it's the it's the north star it's maybe one of the most influential video game storylines ever in terms of its twists but also you know what it tries to do in terms of the character psychology so uh, you play a man who comes looking comes to silent hill looking for his wife who says she wants to meet him there he looks for her and finds this woman who looks exactly like her instead and then also lots of fucked up monsters and very weird people who are in this town and there is the sense that something is not quite right i think i've got the setup right there matthew i don't think that gives away his, his wife died three years ago right the other key but, bit of information yes yeah. that is important i just i was just making sure because you don't know how she died that's the that's the thing you come into the town not only how how she died but he but she he has received this letter that she's waiting for him in silent hill at their special place where the place they used to go and you go there looking for her you don't find her you find 
uh, Maria instead. And then the truth kind of unravels over time where you are facing some of the most fucked up shit you've ever seen in apartment buildings, in um, in a hospital, and a variety of other um, locations. Um, you end up going through like the main town area several times as well. There's a, a cool spooky bar. Um, the, the music uh, by uh, Kiriyamoka is absolutely impeccable. Just some of the most horrible Lynchian um, sounds you'll hear punctuated with like really really nice like kind of i guess like pop rock kind of music as well it really is just this you nothing else sounds like it um really good but matthew why don't you pick up from there because this is always also on your list so um what's your relationship yeah to this I, one? I, I i i agree with all that you know i think everything you say about it, it's true i think uh i think the, the reason i put it low on my list is that uh i came to this super late and by the time i did play it i feel like a lot of it had been spoiled for me or like I knew too much about it mm. and there's like a wow factor to some of its ideas some of its imagery you know what its whole deal is that is uh you know if you don't have that I think it it, it diminishes the story a little bit I mean, which which is why I put it low on my list it's not a very sophisticated take um Mm. But, you know, I am very envious of people who got to play this for the first time. Um, it seems so adult and sophisticated. You know, if if your idea of survival horror is like the mad camp of Resident Evil, you know, what the characters are going through in this game and what's happening to them, what's happened to them in the past and the kind of psychological kind of believability of, of, of a lot of its ideas. It, it's just so much more grown up than Resident Evil. You know, maybe like I like the actual like nuts and bolts of like smacking kind of bollocked faced nurses with lead pipes <laughs> and and sort of solving slightly baffling kind of uh, almost like point and click puzzles. You know, is a little bit of a a little bit of a, a harder hang now, maybe a tiny bit. But um, hmm. yeah, I I also like, and this is nothing to do with the game, but like sadly there are a lot of bad imitators of this game. <laughs> And right. uh, it's you know if anything it makes it reminds you like how special it actually is that you know so many other people have tried doing this sort of psychological horror and it's it's basically like an it can be an invitation to like non horror or or like the twists are always the same it's like people can't loads of people grew up played for Silent Hill two and couldn't really get past it and just endlessly remake it right. Um, which isn't the game's fault. Um, I'm not like marking it down for that. It's just an observation that of like how how important this game is and how easy it is to get to get this very particular like vibe wrong. Yeah, I think it's sort of like it deserves to be appreciated without that wider context. It has nothing to do with the game. I oh, think because yeah, just yeah. because imagine this clubbing you over the head at the time with like oh my god, I can't believe what this is actually doing yeah. because it is very you do you do know something's wrong when you come to the town it feels amiss like it's scary from the off it feels wrong the people there are very strange and spaced out it's just very unsettling from the off and so you know there is a mystery to be unraveled but i don't think anyone first time would guess exactly what is going on and what all of the imagery yeah. you, ex- you you encounter like, it means you know but yeah but like over the years just hearing so much about it like i actively sought out those answers before playing it like an idiot yeah no, you know same, like because I, I kept hearing people talk about pyramid head and it's like all right i just have to like i just have to watch these bits on youtube i just want to know what that is i want to know what its deal is and like that is i, I wish i'd i'd been a bit more patient um <laughs> yeah it's kind of hard to it is 
a little bit difficult to play this in its desired form now. Like the version I played was a like a patched PC version, yeah, with which they kind of jazzed up to make look more like the PS2. But I think like it's uh, the right version of it feels locked to PS2 in a way, you know. It does, yeah, and like you know, I, I that's why I was I play it when I go to go home and see my parents basically because it's like a CRT TV there and a PS2 plugged in, and you're like, this is how it's meant to be experienced, you know. It's your feel- parents are like, come home and see us in our special place. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh well, where bricks have got very misty. I don't remember it being uh, looking... <laughs> with old fucking oboe head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so fucking dumb. Uh... <laughs> you hiding in a locker? Oh, that's so unsettling. Oboe. Don't conflate my dad with pyramid head. Fucking hell. Um, that's the other thing. Actually, it's like even if you know the twist in this, this is how I experienced it. Right, I did know the twist. Right, because. I, frankly I work with Steve Burns and he banged on about this and Jacob's Ladder all the time and I didn't mind because he's very articulate and he made it sound very exciting but it did mean that I just knew inside and out what that twist was but I didn't know everything that happened in this game I didn't know like the what the Pyramid and Head encounters were like like when Pyramid Head turns right. up and it assaults those like weird monster things it's so fucking unsettling and strange and yeah mm-hmm. I don't know it's just like you just feel like you're brushing with something truly inhuman and just and, yeah. and awful and yeah i don't know it's it cast again like this kind of creates existential problems for silent hill they don't know exactly what to do with it. i think three is a pretty cool game maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode but um yeah two is just yeah this is just this like you say it's broken the brains of so many game designers do you think like there would be that twist in bioshock infinite with like booker being elizabeth's father and he sold her and like do you think all of that would be in and comstock mm. being him as well like do you think all of that would be in that game if silent hill 2 hadn't happened because i sometimes feel like those big twists where there's like some other psychological element that's like buried beneath this game is kind of responsible for all of those they just that just mm. didn't exist beforehand you know like well, I suppose like Metal Gear Solid 2 does something kind of similar as well. There's like an identity flip element to what that. What they feed in the Konami? <laughs> yeah, it must have been quite a wild place to work in the early noughties. Anyway. <laughs> really so... weird Christmas parties. <laughs> I still think you can play this PCS, PCSX2, whack this down to 480p. I think you can enjoy this quite nicely on a modern PC still. But yeah. Ooh. Okay, Matthew, number two. What's your number two? M- my number two is The Legend of Zelda <laughs> Oracle of Ages. <laughs> Okay, interesting. Uh, what's uh, what's interesting about this game and distinctive about this game? It is the better of the two. So I mentioned earlier that they kind of align to the Triforce. I don't know if this this is like bunkum or just or just a promotional line. So the line was that each of the three games was going to be aligned with a different bit of the Triforce: power, wisdom, and courage, and that that would be reflected. And in this game. Uh, Oracle of Ages is allegedly the Triforce of Wisdom, so it's the puzzly one. It's the one which has got the hardest dungeons and the weirdest logic in it. And mm. I don't know if that's entirely true because, like, the combat in this game is noticeably harder than the combat in Oracle of Seasons, which is meant to be the actiony one. So I don't really buy that. But um, what I do buy is that this this is the one with the better dungeons. It has a time mechanic, as Oracle of Ages would suggest. There's a lot of going into the past, meddling with stuff to change the future. Um, obviously, you know, very similar to what was going on with Young Link and Adult Link in Ocarina of Time. But 
you know, they explore the idea really fully. They're not just trying to think about 3D space, but 4D space, the idea of changing something in the past, change the future. My read that, again, Fujibayashi is really into Zelda puzzles. A lot of that comes from this game. This is like really hardcore. You have to do a lot of creative thinking with weapons. There's a really good set piece where you go to an island and you're like stripped of all your items and you have to recollect them. Uh, using the order you collect them to unlock the next one. So it's got this like slightly experimental streak to it. I just think it's um, a much fuller Zelda game than Oracle of Seasons. Am I putting both of these games on this list because I could only think of nine games? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but that's, that's the list we're getting. Uh, if you play one of them, it's Oracle of Ages is the one, I think. Mm. Um if you're into the, the the mad sort of spatial dungeon puzzles, which I I do enjoy, uh, there's a lot of that. But the season stuff is so visually appealing, Matthew. Maybe like seasons is the easier easier hang, mm. um, and a bit more like sort of obviously entertaining on the surface. But I, you know, if anything, it shows that these two games are very distinct entities and should both be enjoyed and can both appear on a top 10 list without it being weird. No, I love that. That's absolutely fine. No, no one's questioning that, Matthew. We're all good. Uh, okay, great. Um, yeah, great to hear you uh, discuss uh, those games. That's that's cool. I can't remember if they made your original Zelda top 10. I think they might have done. Um, yeah, they, they, yeah, Oracle of Ages was like number nine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. All right, so my number two is Max Payne. Higher on my list. Oh, I did wonder. I did wonder. That's uh, that's good. In fact, it is. That's like uh, I guess we go on to your number one, right? So that would be this yes. game. Max Payne. Amazing. Okay, great. So we both had it super high. It's funny actually watching um, the sort of like hype around Alan Wake Two. I get the impression that that's a game that's going to be beloved by games journalists and then sell probably like one million copies, and that'll be like its its profile. And like the obsession with Remedy. And their games and their the character of their games stretches all the way back to this uh, this noir infused matrix infused third person shooter where you basically activate bullet time, jump into rooms and gun dudes down. But Matthew, why don't you pick it up from there? Yeah, I mean, the jumping into rooms in bullet time is like the main event here. It's why I was interested in this. You know, to be a to be a fifteen year old in two thousand one. Um, was to have seen The Matrix, you know, a bit earlier and be absolutely obsessed with it and dreaming of one day a game being as cool as that. Um, This also kind of coincides with having, you know, a a PC that was capable of playing games and and making them look pretty nice. And this was back when there was still a very big visual gulf, I feel, between, like, the PC versions of things and the console things. And Max Payne has just always been a mouse and keyboard game like mm. the precision of the shooting you know max Payne 3 mate sort of it kind of unlocked that game playing it on pc and um for me this this is just forever tied to to playing it on pc i mean reading about it in pc gamer and just like like how visually splendid it looked in the screenshots you know every screenshot of this game every still frame looks really exciting because he's flying through the air he's got that sam lake kind of mad face going on um there's like bullet trails going over him you can see like particles of tiles breaking off where bullets are hitting them like ricocheting bullets are sort of turning splinters of wood off tables you know it it was just a sort of fidelity of action that I'd, I'd never seen anything quite like it mm. and you know the slow motion while definitely a strategic power of like letting you jump into the rooms and kind of clear them out in one go 
it also felt designed to just let you look at the thing and go look at how detailed look at the particle effects look at everything moving in slow motion like it's a, a really like kind of obvious mechanic when you sort of think about it from a kind of gunplay point of view but what it unlocks like visually and just how amazing this game looked it was just really really special and you know yes it's all quite short but it's got so much character to it like the weird um kind of nordic stuff that they weave into it and like the nightmare sequences and the, the pulpy vo which you know we've we've obviously sent up on this very podcast um with our hilarious max Payne monologues yeah but, um <laughs> uh it you know that it just it has such a sort of singular tone it really knows what it is and if it's a bit cheesy then so what you know it's it's very rare that you get games with such a such a clear identity to them yeah also i would argue that this game has not dated because this is a mechanic in this exact form that doesn't really exist anywhere else i mean yeah i think there has there is like el paso elsewhere as a game that just come out that has actually directly riffs on this but you know it's it's like one-to-one mouse and keyboard controls it was revolutionary at the time because it felt so good it was like so many games would do bullet time but this did it perfectly out of the box you know like they got it straight away first time and like he couldn't really improve on it and i think that that still stands all these years later it's the it's the fact that it turns third person shooting into a puzzle where it's like you have a finite amount of ammo before you have to reload you jump into that room you have a finite amount of bullet time and it's about using everything efficiently and if you do so you string together basically the most badass kind of like third person shooter set piece you can think of like you just it's cinematic in a in that true sense you know um so yeah yeah Mm. like hugely i remember this being a massive pc gamer game i remember pc gamers enthusiasm for this was so infectious it was what made me think i've got to like i've got to basically cajole my friend donald into buying this i can play on his dad's nice pc so that's exactly what i did and uh yeah um it's it's fine on consoles but it belongs on pc in a very specific way so yeah max Payne, man so good and like the the actual like storytelling stuff like has chops as well like it's well written and it's it's entertaining and they're like you know following the trail of blood is it's an iconic bit of video game storytelling it's not not you know it's it's a pretty much a feat to have to nail that side of things as well as your cool third person bullet time combat so um yeah Mm. top stuff matthew that's uh, your number one. So on to my number one, Grand Theft Auto 3. What a fucking predictable end to this podcast, eh? <laughs> um, but you got two games there that, like, you know, clobber people around the head with something they've never seen before, right? That's, that's, the, thing yeah. that, that's the thing that happens this year. Like, people hadn't seen survival horror done like Silent Hill. They hadn't seen shooting done like Halo Combat Evolved, you know, which came out here in 2002, but 2001 in America and Metal Gear Solid 2 with its weird themes and the the twist of having a second protagonist and, you know, Max Payne with that amazing bullet time combat and then Grand Theft Auto 3 with the 3D open world genre basically being birthed with one game. Like, it's pretty staggering, mm. you know, as a year. So, Matt, yeah. Matthew, why don't you talk a bit about this because you've put this lower down your list. I think that's absolutely fine because, yeah. you know... <laughs> It's kind of mad because if I think back to how important this was and how excited I was for it, you know, not having a PS2, 
having to rent a PS2 to play it because it was just like I have to play this. You know, you know, it's just my my number one objective for this year is to try this game because you know it's apparently the world. It's the th- it's just the whole world again. A bit like Shenmue. It was like one of the promises of video games from that period that anything that kind of like came close to delivering on that was was just so exciting to me and um you know i played it just so much for the weekend that we rented it It was like burnt into my head i was having dreams about it like the interface was like burnt inside my eyelids so whenever i kind of like closed my eyes to sleep i could just sort of see that game and that world like you know very few games have that impact and you know by that strength like it probably should be like a number one i just i i feel like it's it's so clearly like surpassed by other games and they've built on it and they've evolved on it and taken that promise and like run with it i I do find it quite hard going back like um doing that for you know when we went back with like the the re-releases it just didn't quite you know it it felt quite old and archaic it was locked away as this quite happy memory um and you know it seems a bit unfair going well it's it doesn't really compare much to gta 5 now does it but you know that's mad and what does but um it, it is slightly diminished for that reason but you know the promise of getting in a car driving around a city you know that just that sense of freedom the crazy possibilities of it i mean if anything a game that i liked less when it gave me something specific to do and i kind of butted up against it's like you know shooting or weird action mechanics but the just the promise of being out and about you know like 90 percent of what gta would ever be like arguably is here um but the 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 like the 10 percent of extra like polis or evolution is is what make the later ones for me Mm, yeah you know that's i don't think there's anything wrong with what you said there like i think that's um a fair assessment when you look at like you know you want just one year away from vice city which kind of right. g- gives you that sort of like uh a synthetic comic booky sort of like pop culture layer to it that you know and hammers you can hit people with hammers <laughs> and uh yeah and then obviously like um san andreas would do the same thing and then increase the scope vastly so uh actually like um i don't know if we're still doing the pod in a year matthew we should do um 20th anniversary san andreas pod that'd be fun we could play through that um that remaster to see if they fixed it at all and uh, talk about <laughs> that game because that was um quite the thing when it came out so yeah the thing is like obviously like we've covered this um you know yeah, we had that episode where we did we did the 20th anniversary of gta3 and i talked about my connection to it which is as someone who didn't end up getting vice city until later but i had a whole year of just i had this an agent under fire and later i bought on amusha but i had nothing else apart from demo discs for ages yeah. so i just played this over and over again i don't think i've ever heard any combination of like sounds at the start of a game than the rockstar logo um going de 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 jelm jelm and then de and then like the credits kicking off like i must have heard that like hundreds of times it's still burned into my brain you've got like the ear version of screen <laughs> yeah very much so but i actually i think like it's as i, I probably said on that podcast like it, the fact that it sort of has its own identity by not having all this licensed music that they later have to strip out the game and they do new versions of it because they don't want to pay the license fee again and like it has this very particular identity and weird urban modern feel like it just it feels like 
uh, with all these newspapers going around these very like loud industrial sounds like just like this kind of like finchery new york or something like a bit of scorsese bit of fincher just i rushed a really good uh, video recently that kind of talks about how this is almost like a horror game setting because it's just so bizarre like the npcs who fade into view out of nowhere that's because of the pop-up but it's also just because like there's something a bit unsettling about it at times you just it feels off um in this early ps2 kind of way and i i, mm. I kind of know what they're tapping into i do sort of get it um but yeah i i really i really like it i think it, i agree like the mission design is super simple it's like the most larval form really of what what it would become but you definitely like all of the seeds are planted here and i was obsessed with it um so it has to be number one it just it was it was a turning point in the history of video games for sure matthew we did it it was a long pod i thought i thought that was one of our best ones i thought it was really good do you enjoy that yeah i thought that was a better a better list yeah i i think as we as we've got closer to like present day like we're still too close to some of these things mm. you know you need a you need a bit of distance from them and you know maybe the kind of rawness of the era gets in the way of like uh the, the you know the fun of the times you know i only really remember the good bits of 2001 and september 11th <laughs> <laughs> i just like the idea that you've got like this uh you just have a diary from the time and it just it says september, september 11th 2001 saw moulin rouge today and that's all it says there. <laughs> <laughs> saw moulin rouge drank a little apple juice had a pretty good time <laughs> oh dear and on that problematic note um not that we're making lights just to be very clear no, that's obviously. uh yes um but yeah that was i really i really enjoyed that i thought it was good i think there's material here we could definitely do o two o three o four if you fancy it and see how that goes like um Mm. i'll probably get come around to um o two in the new year of matthew but uh yeah that was fun okay well i hope you enjoyed this podcast if you'd like to support us financially patreon.com slash backpage pod there are two tiers one pound tip jar tier four pound fifty tier that unlocks more podcasts two extra podcasts a month we're just about to do the best scorsese movies and we just did the best Resident Evil moments. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? I am at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto on Twitter. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. You can follow the podcast at BackPagePod on Twitter and uh, Blue Sky as well. Um, I'm on, also on Blue Sky, Samuel W. Roberts. Matthew, let's get out of here. See you later. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.